I watched a white riot in Portland, Oregon on television the other night. A barbershop in Portland, Oregon has made the cut. That's what it says here. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, and Katie Riddle tells us why. The story of Dean's Barbershop and Beauty Salon begins in 1944. That's when a young married couple set out from Birmingham, Alabama with their three children for a new life. It was a big, big chance they were taking. Kimberly Brown is their granddaughter. Her grandparents were part of the Great Migration. They left the South along with millions of other Black people. Brown says it was a brave choice. But what were they leaving? I mean, you know, sharecropping and Jim Crow and all the horrible things that our ancestors have lived under. It was the chance that they had to take. It seemed like it was a kind of a moment of collective hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, we, we, there has to be something better. Brown says her grandparents' new life was better. They landed in Oregon. It wasn't an obvious choice. Not that many years previous, the state didn't even allow Black people to live here. But the small number of Black residents made for a close community. Her grandparents bought a house in the heart of that community. Brown stands in front of that same house on this day. Miss Lucille lived there. The family doesn't own it anymore. So it was all the Black neighborhood when I was growing up. Everybody around here was Black. And now? Everybody around here is white. (laughs) Gentrification and redlining has displaced much of the black community. But one thing that is still here, the barbershop that Brown's grandparents started, she now owns and runs it. My grandmother's station was in that corner. Kimberly Brown is a third-generation hairstylist. Her mom's old chair is behind her. I'll tell customers who've been here a long time, like, go to my mom's chair. They know the chair I'm talking about. Much of the neighborhood has moved away, says Brown, but the shop is a refuge. It's a really community space. You know, even if you don't come anymore, you still feel welcome. You still come in and hang out in the shop. You don't have to get your hair done. You can just come and kick it. Many things happen here besides hair. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hair is one. Of, it's probably the least of the things that happens in here. The intangible story of of resilience and continuity over time of a legacy business like Dean's Barbershop is really the next frontier of how we deploy historic preservation resources. Brandon Spencer Hartle is a city planner in Portland. He helped to place the shop on the National Register. He says it's part of a larger effort in cities across the country to reshape the criteria for this designation. It's not just about the buildings you can see from the sidewalk, but about the people who have occupied them. Unlike many buildings on the National Historic Register, this one is living history. Noni Kazi is visiting the shop on this day. She started coming here with her mom when she was six. The beauty shop and the barbershop is a place where young people came to learn how to be adults. Kazi recalls spending hours listening to the older ladies sit and talk in the salon. She says they taught her some of her most important life lessons. Like how to have relationships that lasted forever, how to work through friendships, marriages. And because of that, I was married for like 29 years till death do you part, right? But I only learned that because other women had done it. Kazi says it's not just the women who come of age in Dean's Barbershop and Beauty Salon. She has four sons. The shop provided them with role models, too. It's a place, she says, where a boy can see what it means to be a man. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Portland, Oregon. I used to love our freedom song. And my favorite was, all in salute, bound in jail. And nobody to go there, bail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Oh, 
my Lord, you hold on. The only thing that we did wrong, you stayed in the wilderness a day too long. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, my Lord. On a recent summer day at the White House, a name was called out. Fred David Gray. Lawyer Fred Gray was being honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. A civil rights icon, once called the chief counsel of the protest movement, Gray thinks in more humble terms. When I grew up in the ghettos of Montgomery, Alabama, born December 14, 1930, that's 91 years ago, never thought about a, any presidential award. It just was a matter of... It was a black boy living in a black community where everything was completely segregated. If Fred Gray's life had a motto, it would be, as he often says, to destroy everything segregated I could find. He defended Rosa Parks. He defended Martin Luther King Jr. And before he argued a case at the U.S. Supreme Court, he passed under the words on that building's facade, equal justice under the law, and thought to himself, we shall see. Thinking of Fred Gray's life, so rich with history and lessons for America's future, we're profiling the civil rights generation, those who fought to end discrimination based on race. When we caught up with him for our interview, Gray pointed out how the streets around his Tuskegee, Alabama office have been renamed, how much has changed and how much hasn't. So Fred Gray Street connects Martin Luther King Highway with Rosa Parks Plaza, and in the middle of the plaza is a Confederate monument with a Confederate soldier in it that we filed a lawsuit to try to get that land that the county once owned and conveyed without any consideration to the daughters of the Confederacy. There was a time when Fred Gray didn't know a thing about the law. As I grew up, basically there were two professions that a young African-American could think about being, and that would be a, a preacher or a teacher. Gray's father died when he was two, and at 13, his mother sent him to a Christian school where he trained for a life in the church. And I apparently was a pretty good little boy preacher. He took me on trips throughout the southeast and southwest, let me make a little speech to the church before at those black churches of Christ. Do you remember what you would preach about? Like, did, was there a sermon or your first sermon? Do you remember that? Oh, I don't remember the first sermon, but it's probably what must I do to be saved, which is something that people needed to know. It was a different sort of saving people that drew Fred Gray to the law. He learned lawyers help people solve problems, as he puts it. And he saw so many Black people in his hometown with problems, like navigating Montgomery's segregated public buses. Fresh out of law school, he represented 15-year-old Claudette Colvin after she was arrested when a white passenger wanted her seat. It was another defendant of Fred Gray's who would make that cause famous. I had met Mrs. Rosa Parks when I was a student at Alabama State before I went to law school. And she was the secretary to the branch of the NAACP. She was chairman of the youth committee. And I would go to some of her youth meetings when I was in college. And I opened my law office, which was located a block and a half from the Montgomery Fair, which was the department store where she was working. 
And we had a meeting during her lunch hour. She would walk up to my office and we would sit down and have lunches. We talked about our problems and we talked about if a person decided that they were asked to get up to give their seat to a white person, if they didn't want to do it, how should they conduct themselves? We talked about segregation. We talked about improving youth conditions. And we did that about four or five days a week. And our last conversation was on December the 1st, 1955. I told Mrs. Parks that I had an engagement out of the city and I wouldn't be in that afternoon. She went back to work. When I got back, she had been arrested. I was surprised. But while well, she never said if the opportunity presented itself to me, what she would do. I had a feeling that if that opportunity presented itself, she was well prepared and knew what to do. Following Rosa Parks' arrest, Fred Gray went to the home of educator Joanne Robinson. As he remembers it, that's where they began a movement that would change this country. We sat in her living room and planned what developed into the Montgomery Bus Boycott. I said, well, you know, I'm involved and I'm concerned about the legal aspect of it. She said, well, why don't we just get a leaflet out asking the community to stay off of the buses and then meet at a church and we'll decide where we go from there. I said, that's fine. The only thing with that is if we're successful and if people stay off of the buses, we have to have a plan as to how to keep them off of the bus till there's a non-segregated basis. In order to do that, we need to get a spokesman, somebody who can speak, keep the people together, and be able to communicate whatever our request is to the community and to the power structure in Montgomery. She said, well, Fred, I tell you who the spokesman need to be, my pastor. Martin Luther King Jr. haven't been in town long. He's only been here a year, haven't been involved in any civil rights activities. But one thing he can do, and that is he can move people with words. I said, that's who we need. And it was the beginning of what developed into the civil rights movement. The Montgomery protests lasted more than a year. The Fred Gray emphasizes that it was a lawsuit which led courts to rule segregated buses unconstitutional. When I pressed him about the boycott's legacy, I mean, a lot of people point to obviously the Montgomery bus boycott as a critical example of like a community coming together and making a difference. Do you think that something on the, the scale of the Montgomery bus boycott could happen in this day and age. You have to remember the boycott itself is not what changed the law. What changed the law was Browder versus Gale, the lawsuit that was filed. So I think today with all these problems we're having, it's going to take demonstrations, but we're going to still have to do whatever it takes to get the courts to rule properly. That's why registration and voting is so important, so we can elect the right people, so that the right persons can be appointed or elected to these judgeships, including 
when they are appointed to the Supreme Court, and we still have to have faith in the legal system, because that's the system that has brought us so far, but we have to do all these other things to help that legal system work. For Fred Gray, there's no greater proof of that legal system working than the gerrymandering case he argued before the Supreme Court, Gomillion v. Lightfoot. Well, Gomillion versus Lightfoot came about as a result of the Alabama legislature in 1957 enacting an act which changed the city limits of the city of Tuskegee. We had a black people beginning to get registered. And in order for them to be out of the city, they changed the city limits from a square to 28 sides going out to include white people coming in to exclude black. And Gomillion v. Lightfoot is the case that I filed to do that. And it opened the door where the Supreme Court said you can't discriminate based on race, even in gerrymandering. What do you think about the Supreme Court today? Obviously, a lot of cases have actually rolled back the Voting Rights Act. What do you think of the current makeup of the Supreme Court? Well, we were fortunate enough to have a court during the early stages of my career that really, in my opinion, looked at the Constitution. It wasn't a political matter. While it may have been a political appointment, they realized that once they took an oath of office as a justice on the Supreme Court, everything else is unimportant. Who appointed them, who voted for them, or who voted against them? Are you worried that the work that you and so many others did on issues like voting rights, that is being undone? I tell people in almost every speech I make, and I made one yesterday and I'll make two tomorrow, and that is, if we are not careful, we could end up losing some of the gains we have. And while we have many of our people now who have jobs and doing a lot better than when I was coming up, we still have these problems. And those basic problems are the same, racism, and inequality. We have changed the laws, but we haven't changed the attitudes behind the persons who are enforcing those laws. And those are some of our problems. And you young people are going to have to be able to help solve them. At 91, I understand what it is to retire. But you're still working, right? You're still doing the law, right? I'm in my office right now. We are still in the legal business. And when people want the best legal services, they need to call us in Alabama and we're certain to be able to help. Attorney Fred Gray, still at work and out with the new book, Alabama v. King. And just one member of the civil rights generation will be profiling in coming weeks. The stars at night are big and bright. In Dallas, a whites-only sign that was once displayed above a water fountain has now returned to the county records building. The art installation tasked with adding perspective to the sign, which has been in storage, by the way, during lengthy building renovations. Robbie Owens was there as it was returned today with both reverence and also a renewed mission. You don't think much about fire hoses until you have to 
get hit with water. Water as a weapon. A whites-only water fountain, a symbol of segregation and hate. Is lest we forget. show it was with a church-like reverence that the art installation that marks those dark days was returned to the Dallas County Records building. I'm, I'm ecstatic, I'm elated, and the fact that parents bought their children today to see and be a part of it says it all. And I, I, I believe people can learn by people's mistakes and we can make it better. For years, the whites-only sign had its hateful message hidden its discovery nearly two decades ago was controversial. The local NAACP said, hey, you know, why? why? Why are we keeping it? Commissioner John Wiley Price insisted that the sign be preserved as an eyes wide open reminder of the city's segregated past. In those days, it was represented as just the way it was. And that always saddened me, you know. Brian Freeman would have been welcomed at that fountain fast forward and the 81 year old says he's honored that his marble company was tasked with carefully removing the signed stone slab. That didn't make any sense at all to a young kid, you know, when I was uh, being brought up there. Just didn't make sense. Now the Lauren Woods art installation incorporates civil rights videos where hatred once flowed. And how dare we let all of those individuals in our past let them down. Moses told Joshua, you know, those 12 stones, you know, what do you say of these stones? When our kids look and say, this is where we've come from. In Dallas, Robbie Owens, CBS 11 News. Our border policy is a joke. So is anybody surprised that south of the border they're laughing at us? Laughing at our laws? Yeah. Every night, thousands of these parasites stream across the border like some fucking pinata exploded. <laughs> Don't laugh. There's nothing funny going on here. This is about your life and mine. It's about decent, hardworking Americans falling through the cracks and getting the shaft because their government cares more about the constitutional rights of a bunch of people who aren't even citizens of this country. On the Statue of Liberty, it says, give me your tired, your hungry, your poor. Well, it's Americans who are tired and hungry and poor. And I say until you take care of that, close the fucking book. Because we're losing. We're losing our right to pursue our destiny. We're losing our freedom so that a bunch of fucking foreigners can come in here and exploit our country. A new survey illuminates a political reality as the fall elections approach. That survey is a new NPR Ipsos poll. It finds most people endorse negative views of immigration. Many say they agree with descriptions of immigrants that are false or misleading. And support for immigrants overall has declined. NPR's Joel Rhodes has been looking at the findings. Joel, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What do you see in that survey? Well, one of the things that really stands out is that about half of Americans say the U.S. is experiencing an invasion at the southern border. Completely or somewhat, they agree with the idea of invasion. I guess we should just pause to say, by the dictionary definition, that's not true. An invasion would be moving in with an armed force. That is obviously not happening. But you're saying that most Americans, when asked in this survey, say that they think it's really true or kind of true that there's an invasion. Exactly, Steve. Yeah. Half of Americans say it is either completely or somewhat true that the U.S. is experiencing an invasion. And it's driven largely by Republicans. Three out of four agreed with that framing, including Michael Cisternino. He's a poll respondent from Nevada. The people that are coming in from different countries, I think too many of them are being let in haphazardly. 
We are not actually screening enough people to make it safe for the rest of the country. But not everyone agrees that invasion is the right way to describe what's happening at the border. Here's Neil Gopal Sharma. He's a poll respondent and a Democrat from North Carolina. A lot of immigrants are coming here for safety, and a lot of them are coming here for a chance, I guess. Unfortunately, I feel like the rhetoric has just been that, like, there's this large, like, xenophobic kind of talk that's being thrown around. I should say that Democrats and immigrant advocates say this invasion rhetoric is way off base because nearly all border crossers are unarmed. Most are fleeing from violence and poverty in their home countries. And advocates say this rhetoric is potentially dangerous because it could make immigrants a target for violence. What else is in this survey uh, in people's beliefs that you could describe as false or misleading? Well, we found that large numbers of Americans hold, uh, you know, a wide variety of misconceptions about immigrants, greatly exaggerating their role in smuggling illegal drugs into the U.S., for example. Also, how likely immigrants are to use public benefits or to commit crimes. And we found that Republicans are more likely to hold these negative views of immigrants. Mallory Newell is a vice president at Ipsos, which conducted this poll. These statements of false or misleading or incomplete information are definitely gaining more traction among Republicans. Let's take the illegal drug fentanyl as an example. It's true that overdose deaths from fentanyl are up and that a lot of fentanyl is smuggled across the southern border. But the vast majority of that fentanyl is smuggled through official ports of entry. It's not brought in by migrants who are arrested crossing the border between those ports, who often are just turning themselves in to seek asylum. However, six out of 10 Republicans in our poll said incorrectly that, quote, most of the fentanyl entering the U.S. is smuggled in by migrants. Hmm. So the difference between anecdotal information and statistical information there. Given all of these misconceptions, what has happened to the overall view of immigration? Well, this is one of the most striking things in the poll for me. When we polled Americans on immigration back in 2018, three out of four respondents agreed that, quote, immigrants are an important part of our American identity. Today, that number has fallen sharply down to just 56%. Joel, thanks so much. You're welcome, Steve. That's NPR's Joel Rose. Winston Churchill once said in a speech, we shall fight on the beaches. He was referring to resisting an invasion during World War II, but his line could just as well apply to beaches in Massachusetts this summer. Here's Chris Burrell from our member station GBH in Boston. Under blazing sun and temperatures in the 90s, here's what happens when I try parking at a beach in Marshfield, 30 miles south of Boston. I'm sorry, you can't park. It's beach sticker only and it's really packed, so I can't let anyone without one in. Got it. And is these only stickers for residents? I'm pretty sure, like, you can only be a resident and get a sticker. It's a similar story up and down the Massachusetts coastline. Towns with so-called public beaches either exclude non-residents outright, or they create parking and fee regulations that make it difficult or too expensive just to have a day at the beach. And those restrictions are only getting tighter, says Cindy Castro, the beach manager in this town. While french fries sizzle in the beachside snack stand, Castro says a housing boom means more residents are using the beaches, squeezing out parking spaces for out-of-towners. We just had a 250-unit apartment building open up, so that puts more pressure, more residents, less non-residents. We're staying static with the number of spaces that we have. Other beach towns, including some on Cape Cod, are also clamping down to limit access for out-of-towners, blaming the onslaught of beachgoers during the pandemic. 
Parking tickets in Plymouth, the famous landing site for the pilgrims, quadrupled after town leaders banned non-residents from parking near one beach. Similar tensions are playing out in Rhode Island, Florida, and Puerto Rico between beachgoers and the gatekeepers, such as condo developments or state laws impeding access. In Massachusetts, it's also a case of high demand for too little sand. Just 12% of ocean beaches are open to all members of the public, thanks to a statute allowing private ownership all the way to the low tide line. And despite increasing demand, Massachusetts has not acquired any new recreational beach properties in more than 30 years. Meanwhile, coastal property values have skyrocketed. As housing markets and as communities become more exclusive, public access decreases, if not completely exhausted. Andrew Carl is a historian at the University of Virginia who wrote a book about restrictive beaches in Connecticut. He says exclusionary practices follow a rise in real estate values. Off the coast of Massachusetts, on the island of Nantucket, where the median price for a single-family home tops $2.2 million, summer resident Boots Tolsdorf decided to go beachcombing for scallop shells last summer. But the shells lay on a private beach, with no trespassing signs posted from the dune to near the waterline. Tolsdorf, who is 80, says that just minutes after she ventured off this small public beach, an irate beach owner pushed her twice. When he approached me, I'm sure I had some shaking in my knees about it. But I'm a pretty strong woman. Not maybe physically, but I mean, I thought I had a right to be there, and he certainly had no right to treat me that way. Nantucket police did not charge Tolsdorf with trespassing, but the man is charged with assaulting a person over the age of 60. On upscale Martha's Vineyard, beach guards shooing away trespassers are commonplace, but at the island's most popular public beach, erosion is quickly becoming the biggest barrier to access. The eastern side of South Beach is nearly submerged at high tide. Local officials say storms and rising sea levels have eaten away 70 feet of sand in the last three years. The state is now spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to re-nourish the beach, plant dune grass, and relocate a bathhouse. Longtime beachgoers like Sherry Sebesta, visiting from upstate New York, say the volleyball nets and lifeguard stand are gone. There's no room for them. The other day, there was really just like 10, 20 feet of actual sand to sit on. It has changed so dramatically, so quickly. Within five, ten years, it seems like it'll be definitely pushed back up to the dunes. Martha's Vineyard isn't alone. Rising seas forced one Cape Cod town earlier this year to abandon its parking lot and build a new one on higher ground. Climate change, bigger storms, and coastal towns toughening up access. It all means getting a day at the beach is only getting harder. For NPR News, I'm Chris Burrell. Gravel racing has exploded in popularity. The bike race organizers have prioritized diversity and inclusion in ways other sports have not. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports from Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Marley Blonsky co-founded an advocacy group called All Bodies on Bikes. I'm a fat, short woman. She was about to climb on her bike to lead a warm-up ride here Saturday for some of the more than 3,000 riders who lined up the next day for SBT Gravel, one of the biggest gravel races in the world. We're all about inclusion in the cycling world, so making sure that people have clothing and gear and equipment and feel empowered to ride, regardless of what their body looks like. 
SBT has four courses, the longest 142 miles. Riders roll cross-country past ranches, through cow pastures, and along streams. Here, as in most gravel races, competitors from pros to beginners start together. Major gravel races often have warm-up rides like Blonsky's called shakeouts. Among those at SBT, one celebrated women, trans, femme, and non-binary riders, and another promoted racial justice. Amy Charity is the race's co-founder and owner and says everyone's welcome. And it doesn't matter if you are at the absolute front end of the peloton, you're a world tour pro, or you're somebody doing your very first bike event. We want you to feel welcome and like you belong. This is just the third year for SBT. This time it's added classes for non-binary riders and paracyclists. From its beginning, the organizers reached out to women and about a thousand signed up this time. Other major gravel races also emphasize diversity and inclusion. Molly Cameron is a top transgender racer, a sponsored pro, and a consultant to bike industry companies. If you're a two or 300 pound fat cyclist and you go to like a skinny bike racer criterium, you can feel like this isn't the place for you because you don't see anyone that looks like you out there on the race course racing. You come to a gravel event and you look around and you're like, there's 40 other fat cyclists and men and women and queers and non-binary folk. And like here at SBT is a ride for racial justice. And like Black riders have long been rare in bike racing, but more are finding a place in the gravel community. At an outdoor roundtable, racer Lisa Muhammad, a black single mother of five, triggered tears and clapping with her story about what gravel racing meant after her husband's recent death. She's an amateur state champion racing on pavement, but says gravel is about things that matter more than race results. With gravel, I can just kind of stop time and just really soak it in. Soak in the sound of the wind blowing, the birds chirping, the sun beating down on my face. And the people in the sport make her feel welcome. I think it's taken a while for road to really accept athletes of color where gravel is, come as you are, and we're gonna have fun. We're not gonna take ourselves so seriously, and we're gonna enjoy the ride. Top men's pro Ian Boswell says when it comes to gravel, inclusion should mean pretty much everyone. Traditionally in, in sport, we've defined it by who's the best, who's the fastest, and we have this opportunity now to define that in a different way. So Sunday, he tried something besides being the fastest. With the blessing of his sponsors, he started at the very back on an electric bike with cargo bags stuffed with food and drink and tire repair gear, then just roamed the course, making sure more people had fun on their bikes. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. If your lifespan is the number of years you live on Earth, what is your health span? A study of accelerated aging shows that a person's biological age may be very different from what it says on their birth certificate. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has the story. An exercise studio with a hardwood floor is filled with senior citizens moving to R&B music. 
This is a soul dancing class taking place in La Mesa. It's one thing people do to remain fit and stay young. And while staying young may not be literally possible based on the time you've been on this earth, the idea is not so far-fetched when you consider a person's biological age, which is the state of your health, or, as it said in a UC San Diego health study, a person's epigenetic age. And then epigenetic age refers to someone's biological age. It's one way to measure biological age, but it captures the health of your tissues and cells and organ systems using the methylation marks across the genome. Purva Jane is an epidemiologist and former PhD student at UC San Diego. Her article on epigenetic age acceleration among women appeared in the journal JAMA Network Open. The methylation marks she mentions are molecules that attach to your DNA, causing some genes to be expressed and some to not be. In Purva Jane's research, those methylation markers were revealed through blood tests of about 1,800 women. UCSD professor and chief of epidemiology Andrea LaCroix was Jane's dissertation advisor. If a biomarker only matches with our chronological age, we could know that from our birth certificate. But what we're trying to find is a marker that we can easily measure in the blood that tells us whether we're aging faster or slower than our chronological age. The research found that when markers act on your DNA, they can increase the risk of disease and accelerate your biological age. Jane says that has a profound effect on how long we live and how well we live. So what we found is that for every five to eight years of epigenetic age acceleration, you had a 20 to 32 percent lower odds of living to age 90 with intact mobility and cognitive functions. Jane says those methylation markers are kind of like traffic signals for your genes. But how do they get there? In the case of accelerated aging, it could just be bad luck. But scientists say that well-known factors like lack of exercise and poor diet do influence your health. Put another way, they can determine your health span. Again, Andrea LaCroix. Many of us think about uh, growing older, and the thing we fear most isn't dying, but losing the ability to live the lives we want to live. Uh, at least in surveys in the past, that's what older adults have told us, that they don't care as much about living to be the oldest age they can be, but they care a lot about being able to do the things that they love doing for the longest period of time. And that's really what health span is. If accelerated aging can be reversed or stopped altogether, that's what some of these people are trying to do in that La Mesa exercise studio. The studio, part of Oasis San Diego, has many fitness classes for old folks. 62-year-old Pat Vorman, a retired nurse, clearly exercises here to keep her biological age as low as possible. Oh my gosh, it keeps your mind young, it keeps your heart young, just your whole body keeps, keeps you moving and it's so important for the whole, the whole picture of health. Eleanor Smith, who's 88 years old, is one of the fitness instructors at San Diego Oasis. It's not just to stay young, it's to feel good and to be able to do the things you want to do. Of course, some people have seen their health spans run out, like Andrea LaCroix's mother, who has advanced Alzheimer's disease. She can no longer get out of her chair, she can no longer speak, she can't say our names. And we can't tell if she knows us, if she knows that we're her daughters. LaCroix says every person needs to decide what their health span means to them. And that question is crucial when it comes to planning the final years of our lives. Thomas Fudge, 
KPBS News. Black babies cost less. When Jade Kearney had her first daughter in 2017, she felt totally prepared. She had a doula, and she was clear with her doctor about not wanting to die during pregnancy. Kearney is a Black woman, and she knows the statistics well. For example, Black women are more than three times more likely to die during pregnancy than white women. But the real work started for me the moment I left the hospital. I had crippling postpartum anxiety um, in the form of intrusive thoughts about harming my daughter. Jade Kearney turned to friends and family for help, and she got nowhere. I felt like I was failing the cultural norms of suffering in silence, and I knew I wasn't going to get any help from friends and family at that point because mental health is a huge cultural stigma in the Black community. And so from there, I went to my healthcare provider and My physician's words were, hey, a lot of women get this. I'm going to send you Zoloft. I have breached twins. I'll check back in with you in six weeks. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm just like, no one is talking to me. No one is helping me. And I felt lost. I felt alone. That experience inspired Jade Kearney to launch She Matters. It's a digital platform designed to address postpartum depression and other comorbidities of Black mothers. The way we support our Black mothers is through connecting Black mothers to culturally competent healthcare providers that go through our training, offering them community to validate those experiences, and giving culturally relevant resources. Um, my co-founder likes to say you can find more about the mental illness within dogs than Black women. We just don't have enough stats that relate to us. You've mentioned a couple times the idea of cultural competence in the healthcare setting, and I can say I've certainly run into problems with that myself. But for people who may not understand what you mean when you're talking about the importance of culturally competent care, can you just give us an example? An example is when a Black mom is experiencing stress, she might say, God spoke to me and I really feel like I should be here. Some therapist, a psychiatrist, may feel like she's having psychosis. But in the Black community, to say that you're speaking to a higher power is actually very normal. And it's a part of our spirituality. So being able to be culturally competent is like to plug in to colloquialisms and and build your lexicon and be able to communicate with Black folks from a place Um, that they are familiar with so they can get the best care. I'm hoping that you can share a success story with us. One example of how She Matters has helped a Black woman navigate the system, the experience of motherhood and postpartum effectively to navigate it well. I can give you a story of a woman in Maryland, actually, who had terrible pelvic pain uh, during sexual intercourse And had gone to her doctor many, many times. And her doctor started to say, this is in your mind. You're not really experiencing this pain. And offered her immediately an antidepressant. She would cry about this. She would talk to her husband. It was creating problems within their marriage. We paired her with an OBGYN who was culturally competent. And it turns out she had a huge cyst that was creating the pain. So it just took somebody listening, just listening and believing her to get her the help that she needed. And this is the story that we hear more often than not. When I hear that, that is uh, you, you actually were able to take this one woman, this patient in Maryland, and connect her with 
a different medical provider than the one that she had previously been seeing. That sounds like a pretty labor-intensive intervention and support. Is that the common level of assistance that Black mothers receive through She Matters? It is. So it's it's not too difficult. We have a bunch of culturally competent healthcare providers within our network, and we it goes by state. So we just connect you with one. Right now, you are focused on the experiences that Black women have in the healthcare system, but I can imagine there may be people from other backgrounds, other expectant parents who are hearing the conversation that you and I are having and wondering if one day there will be a platform like She Matters that serves their communities. Do you have plans to expand it further? Yes. At the end of the year, She Matters will turn into We Matter, and She Matters will be product one. Ella Importa, which is She Matters in Spanish, will be product two. Native Her will be product three. And They Matter will be product four. And so Ella Importa is for Hispanic women. Um, Native Her is for Native and Indigenous women. And They Matter is for the LGBTQ plus trans community. Jade Kearney is the CEO and co-founder of She Matters. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A terrible thing to waste environmental racism and its assault on the american mind written by harriet a washington shocking new bombshell about the cancer cluster in houston's fifth ward in cashmere gardens erica's at the smart board with a story she's followed for years eric our partners at the houston chronicle were given a report that showed contamination from a nearby rail yard was way worse than anyone thought the report was done 20 years ago back in 2002 as part of a lawsuit from union pacific workers who kept getting sick for years we thought creosote was the main offender that seeped into the soil and nearby groundwater the report turned up not only creosote, but a number of other cancer-causing agents, and even worse, revealed the rail yard off Liberty Road used a concoction of deadly pollutants. The chemical engineer referred to it as a creosote extender. Emily Foxhall, environmental reporter for the Cron, broke down the discovery from her exclusive article. It showed that there was toxic waste brought in from several different sites in the Houston region. And these sites are what are now known as Superfund sites. So that means the federal government considers them some of the most um, concerning or dangerous contaminated sites in the country. Um, so the toxic waste was brought in and mixed with the creosote as part of the wood treatment process. Foxhall went on to call this a, quote, clear case of environmental injustice. I've been covering the story since 2019 as well, when the Texas Department of State Health Services first deemed the historic black community a cancer cluster. Union Pacific admitted to the Cron that it is aware the toxic waste was used at a certain point, but claimed any contaminated extender was discontinued. The rail giant went on to say it's interested and open to any new information. The city of Houston and Harris County have issued an intent to sue Union Pacific for all the damage caused. This afternoon, I spoke to Sandra Edwards, a woman I featured in my story for years about this new development. She says this validates their point even further, which is that things were worse than people would admit. They just didn't have the scientific proof or verbiage to connect the dots and show that they were being poisoned. Now they do. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally 
and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war that until there no longer the family of a man deported from Britain to Jamaica are taking legal action after claiming he was unlawfully detained and removed despite his severe mental health needs. Deportation flights to Jamaica are controversial, with the majority of people being taken off due to last-minute legal challenges. In this case, 38-year-old Eric Hall had arrived in London as a child and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia in his teens. He got a criminal record with convictions for theft, drugs and possession of an offensive weapon, though his family insist that was largely down to poor mental health and that he remains vulnerable. Adina Campbell reports from Jamaica. In a small farming town in southwest Jamaica, retired painter and decorator Errol Brown is solemn. He's unexpectedly caring for his 38-year-old stepson, Eric Hall who was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia in his early teens. Eric was deported from the UK to Jamaica in May earlier this year. He went to school in England. He grew up everything that's about him is in England. He haven't got friends, he haven't got nothing here. What's it like seeing your stepson in this it's way? It's hard, <laughs> hard. But he's sick, he's a sick boy. I live with him and he's a sick boy. Eric was born in Jamaica, but left at the age of 10 to live in the UK. The Home Office deported him for having 28 criminal convictions for 55 offences, ranging from theft, drugs and possessing an offensive weapon. But his family, legal team and local MP say his offending was mainly down to his poor mental health. Eric's elderly stepfather is now his full-time carer, even though he says he needs medication and the wraparound mental health support he was getting in the UK. He and the rest of his family also claim he was drugged on the deportation flights. He can't explain to me how under God's earth he get here. He would have to be sedated or knocked out. He couldn't move. He didn't know where he was. He just sat there. In a statement, the Home Office says passengers are never sedated and it's wrong to suggest otherwise and adds this government puts the rights of the British public before those of dangerous criminals, particularly for an individual convicted of 55 offences. It also says foreign criminals should be deported from the UK wherever it is legal and practical to do so. Any foreign national who is convicted of a crime and given a prison sentence is considered for deportation at the earliest opportunity. You visit me even when he was living by himself. In London, Eric's mum Polly Brown is now only left with memories. His school report, they always have said good things about him. You want him home? Yes, I want him home. He's just a child with a mental health problem that needs help and support. And I'm praying to get him back. She and the rest of the family are taking legal action to try and bring him back to the UK. My constituent's brother has been diagnosed with a severe mental disorder. They're also being supported by Janet Daby, MP for Lewisham East, who raised Eric's case in Parliament on the day he was deported. ...of extremely vulnerable people in these circumstances. Eric's legal team has filed a claim of unlawful detention and deportation 
against the Home Office. Holly Stowe, an immigration lawyer at Wilson Solicitors, says an individual should be given three days notice before being deported. We were given no removal directions as his lawyers. Two days before his removal, his family went to visit him and Eric mentioned that he wasn't served any paperwork. But obviously, we need to take into consideration his mental health. If he was given paperwork, it's likely he wouldn't have understood it, the severity of it or what it meant. Eric's human rights have been breached. The Home Office says foreign criminals and their legal representatives are served their removal directions in advance of flying and all claims raised are fully considered and determined before deportation. For now, all Eric's family can do is wait. His mum, Polly, fears the worst. Adina Campbell in Jamaica. Better for, if I was white, I'd be better off. Isn't that true? Kendall Harris has studied the generational trauma of racism as a college student at Ohio State University. She's also experienced it in her own life. Harris filed this report as part of IdeaStream's Sound of Us initiative featuring our summer interns. This past summer, I went down to Florida to visit my family. I was excited to see all of them, but the real star of the show was my brand new baby cousin, Iris. <laughs> She is talkative, curious, and strikingly independent. My mom said I was just like her as a kid. I was so happy to see my family and finally meet Iris, but my mom's comment made me apprehensive. I didn't want my baby cousin to become like me in every way. I didn't want her to struggle with mental illness like I did, or face the trauma and pain that I and the generations of strong black women before me often did. So, to protect Iris and soothe some of my fears, I decided to investigate the cycle of generational untreated mental illness in African-American descendants of slavery. I hoped I could break this cycle and help save her from it. First, I reached out to Dr. Tiffany Dent. She describes herself as a psychologist of the culture because of how she works to resolve the unique mental health issues black people face. We see how the world treats people who look like us and the responses that people say when we're harmed, which is justification for us being harmed, it impacts who we are. But Dr. Dent says the field of psychology doesn't recognize that experiencing racism can even be trauma, which makes it hard to resolve and prolongs healing. It's not just professional researchers that see this missing link in psychology. It's black people everywhere. Here's my college roommate and close friend, Katie. We go to Ohio State University, whose student body is only 25% non-white. There are many issues that go unnoticed and unrecognized, and they affect a lot of the minorities there. Issues like insensitivity from peers, having to correct professors on their teaching of race, and hearing non-black people use the N-word. Fortunately, Dr. Dent told me that there are a lot of different ways for people to seek help. I've done, um, you know, workshops and I always tell people, whether it's in church or in the community, I make them say I'm a psychologist. Do not call me a minister. Do not call me a speaker. Call me a psychologist. This is what mental health and emotional wellness looks like. The idea of church being a healing space reminded me of my mom. She grew up in the same church where a lot of our family had gone. I asked her to show me photos of them. Let's see. Oh, this is an interesting one. No. Oh. That this is your great-great-great-grandmother, I believe. Sally Ann Mariah Dealey Bell Polk Hill. 
I asked my mom how the black church shaped her values. I mean, even the songs, it's like every song speaks to turning it over to Jesus and how he brought you, you know, and delivered you. But I think it was born of that era, that time that those songs were written in, because when you're so focused on survival, you don't necessarily have the opportunity to address some of the underlying issues. Even as times changed and got incrementally better, she says there is an idea planted within black communities that our resilience and faith alone should be enough to carry us through hardship. But she says we have to reshape that mindset. Until you intentionally break the cycle, do something different, you can't make any changes. So I always wanted it to be something that we weren't ashamed of talking about and willing to confront. My mom assured me that in confronting this reality, our reality, I was on the right path. Well, it's great. <laughs> on the last day of my vacation, my parents and I babysat my cousin Iris. I held her in my lap and my dad spoon-fed her mashed potatoes, grapes, mashed potatoes covered in grapes, and whatever else she could get a hold of in her chubby little fingers. Looking back on those memories, I realize I may not be able to shield Iris from the difficult things that she may face in her future. But what I can do is tell her that it's safe to talk to me, that there's strength in our vulnerability, and that speaking up is the first step in breaking this cycle. For IdeaStream Public Media, this is Kendall Harris. I can feel it deep inside This black nigger's pride I have no fear when I say And I say it every day Every nigger is a star Every nigga is a star Who will deny that you and I And every nigga is a star An Enfield mom is speaking out now after she says her son was called a racial slur while they were fundraising for the high school football team on Saturday. NBC Connecticut's Briseida Landaverde joins us live in Enfield with their story. Briseida. Yes, good evening, Keisha and Mike. Now we spoke to Kelly Jackson, who tells us her son Jacoby has participated in many fundraising events, and Saturday was no different. He was out in the community door knocking with a football jersey on when one woman and her son allegedly called him the N-word and told him to get off the property. An Enfield mom is calling for change. I'm lucky my son came home, and I'm, I, I don't want to risk ever again having this happen to him. Kelly Jackson says on Saturday, her 14-year-old son, Jacoby, was out selling discount cards in the annual fundraiser for Enfield's football team when he was allegedly called a racial slur and threatened by one of the homeowners he approached on Hind Street. As he stepped on the property, the woman yelled at him to get the F off of her property. And then I guess the son opened the window, he's 22, and proceeded to tell my son to get the F off the property or he will shoot him and called him the N-word and then proceeded to continue to berate him as he walked away. Jackson says Jacoby backed off the property with his hands in the air. Because he just wanted to let them know, like, I'm, I'm leaving. I have no problems. Jacoby immediately told his brother, who was nearby, what happened, and they called the football coaches, who then called police. Jackson says her son is a humble kid. He has played football since he was six years old. He just doesn't understand 
understand why this happens, why people are like this. So, you know, he's going about life doing his thing, but he, you know, he, he said he's used to this. He's heard it before, and it's not his first or last time, and it shouldn't be that way. Enfield police say the incident was investigated, and one of the residents admitted to uttering a racial slur. However, authorities say Jacoby and the resident had different accounts of whether any threatening statement was made. According to the police, it's a he said, she said situation. So the homeowner claims that he did not make these threats. As for the racial slur, officials say as deeply offensive as the language is, the use of it standing alone does not violate any criminal law. The town manager reacting to Saturday's incident, saying what took place is not okay. I think I speak for most of the community when I say that we were both disgusted but also frustrated that we're continuing to have incidents like this across the country and the state as well as in our own town. Now the town will be hosting a community conversation on race, diversity and equity next Tuesday at 5.30 on the town green. Of course it is open to the public and all are welcome to come. Now coming up at 6 we have more details on how the school district addressed this incident with the rest of the football team. For now, live in Enfield, Perseida Londa Verde, NBC Connecticut News. Back to you guys. is coming right up. And if you are a student or you have one in your home, you may not realize how much that school-issued laptop or tablet might know about your private life. A report in Wired magazine digs into the school surveillance software that monitors students' online activity both in and out of the classroom. And it asks how much private information can be accessed by schools or by law enforcement for that matter. Pia Saras wrote the story. It is headlined, Kids Are Back in Classrooms and Laptops Are Still Spying on Them. Pia Saras, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so these surveillance programs, as I understand it, they were originally meant to monitor student productivity during the pandemic, during virtual school. Um, Now kids are back or they're about to go back, mostly in person these programs are still being widely used. Do we know how widely? Sure. So uh, according to a report conducted by the nonprofit Center for Democracy and Technology, schools are actually using monitoring software even more than they were last year. So even though the majority of American K-12 students are or will soon be returning to the classroom, 89% of teachers say that their schools will continue to be using monitoring software on their devices. That's up five percentage points from last year. Why? So two big reasons come to mind. One is that teachers genuinely find them useful, even in the classroom. One high school teacher I spoke with said that it made her more efficient. Teachers are facing these unprecedented demands in the classroom. They're helping students catch up from all of the academic and emotional disruption caused by the pandemic. So I completely see the appeal of tools that make a teacher's life easier. Mm-hmm. And the last reason is more somber. I think the the fear of violence at schools is a specter that hangs over school communities, especially after tragedies like the shooting in Uvalde. Everyone wants to keep kids safe, and these companies say in their own marketing copy that their detection and surveillance algorithms can help save lives. So in a climate of fear, that claim could sound very reassuring. And just before we move on, so I understand, why would these programs make a teacher more efficient? Sure. So 
according to the particularly high school teachers that I was talking to, the live view that the company's uh, software offers lets teachers see what's happening in real time on students' screens so they can keep students more focused, they can see which students are on task, which students are maybe getting distracted and veering towards the many, many distractions that the internet can offer a student. A teacher can also use the software to take remote control of the device and zap the offending tab themselves. Zap them. They can actually come in and, and shut down your Instagram or your, you know, Zappos shoe shopping, that type thing. Obviously, you've been talking about teachers being able to monitor. What about law enforcement? Do police have the ability to access this? Right. So that was one of the big reasons why I first came to this story after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think that You know, myself and others have been thinking about the ways in which our everyday digital surveillance infrastructures could potentially be closer to police than we'd normally think they are and could be used to criminalize those who are seeking reproductive health care. So according to the CDT survey, 37% of teachers said that schools will have the monitoring software on outside of regular hours and during those off-school hours, alerts are directed or can be sent to a public safety organization such as police who would receive those alerts and decide how to respond from there. Huh. To be clear, this is all perfectly legal as the law currently stands? Absolutely. Huh. So if I'm a parent, I'm a parent, <laughs> <laughs> or, or a kid using a school-issued laptop, are there best practices to recommend if you are interested in protecting your privacy and and your family's privacy? That is such a great question. I think the first thing to do is to have a conversation with your child about the expectation of privacy that they should and should not have on their school-issued devices. The second thing that I would encourage parents to do is talk to your children's school. Try to get as transparent an idea as possible about what kinds of data the monitoring company is collecting on students, whether it works after hours, and whether it could potentially be used to bridge the connection between the classroom and law enforcement. Pia Saras from Wired Magazine, thank you for sharing your reporting. Thank Fascinating. You. Thank you for having me. Take care. Even before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, as states took aggressive steps to make abortions more difficult to access, abortion rights advocates started to warn that private online activity could be used to target, discourage, or punish those seeking abortion services. Now, critics said that was far-fetched, but those concerns are already playing out in court. According to recent reports, a mother and daughter in Nebraska are facing criminal charges for allegedly performing a self-medicated abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy. That's illegal in that state. 
Part of law enforcement's evidence against the two women came from online messages collected by Meta, Facebook's parent company, of conversations allegedly referencing abortion medication. This has privacy advocates reiterating their concerns about data privacy or the lack thereof on sites like Facebook. So we decided to ask just what privacy controls various platforms offer and how you, a user, can protect your online data. For that, we called Logan Kepke. He is a project director for Upturn. That's a nonprofit that says it investigates ways that technology can reinforce inequities and it advocates ways to change the status quo. And he is with us now. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Here is where I am required to say that Facebook's parent company, Meta, pays NPR to license NPR content. And with that disclosure being said, in response to this case, a spokesperson for Meta tweeted that the request from law enforcement didn't mention abortion. And one can imagine that there are other requests for data that might not use the word, but which are about reproductive rights Mm -hmm. and abortion care. Do you think that that has is the case. I mean, do you think that that is, is, is common, I guess, would be the question. So that statement would seem to apply that if the search warrants had mentioned abortion, there would be a different result. But I really do not think that that's true. Unless Meta is going to announce a new policy that they're going to always object to search warrants seeking inf- information and abortion-related investigations, which I don't think they are, that sort of claim that this warrant did not mention anything abortion-related really means nothing. When we see companies resisting legal process or search warrants for user data, usually that's in two different categories. The first category is when there's an overbroad request. That's when law enforcement are obtaining a search warrant that either asks for too much data or data from too many people. Uh, And the other kind of request that these companies will frequently fight is if a request seeks the company to either damage or change a product feature in some way. So in response, is it is it in response to this that earlier this week, Meta announced it was expanding its messenger apps end-to-end encryption? For people who don't know, can you tell us what end-to-end encryption is? And is this a move that you think is appropriate? Yeah, so end-to-end encryption adds extra security and protection to your messages. Every device in an end-to-end encrypted conversation has a special key that's basically used to protect the conversation of the two people in that conversation. When you send a message in an end-to-end encrypted conversation, imagine you and I were sending messages, your device locks the message as it's sending, basically. And that message could only be unlocked by a device that owns one of the special keys for that conversation. Um, So in this instance on Facebook Messenger, not even Facebook would have the ability to read the messages if end-to-end encrypted uh, messaging was enabled. This is one of those situations where where you stand depends on where you sit in in a way. Mm-hmm. But there are, I think, people who would also look at this and say that these platforms are used for, you know, certainly, you know, conspirators in the, say, the January 6th mob attack on the Capitol, just to name one example, are using these apps to communicate with each other. And I think other people might say, well, gee, in situations like that, I do want law enforcement to have access to these messages and building a conspiracy case. How how do you balance those those concerns, those competing concerns? So what I would say is that 
Yes, we're end-to-end encrypted messaging on Facebook's messaging services enabled by default. You know, the detectives in this case would not have been able to access the Facebook messages at issue. Even if those messages were encrypted, law enforcement would simply obtain a search warrant to search the cell phone of the mother or daughter in this case, right? It'd be highly likely that they have the Messenger app on their phone, and law enforcement could simply access the contents of the Facebook Messenger conversation that way. And this is actually something we spent a great deal of time at Upturn researching, which is that more than 2,000 law enforcement agencies across the United States have these tools that are called mobile device forensic tools. And these tools are cell phone extraction tools that are a powerful technology that allow police to extract a full copy of data from your cell phone. So imagine all of your emails, all of your texts, all your photos, all of your locations, app data, and more, which can then be searched by law enforcement. So I'd say to someone who's worried that law enforcement won't be able to get access just because Facebook says we're going to deploy end-to-end encrypted uh, messaging across our platform, is that that does not shut the door on law enforcement access, period. The unfortunate reality is that so many of us today retain so much private information on our phone, and that can still be the subject of a search warrant by law enforcement. And so I think what I hear you saying is, at the end of the day, your individual responsibility to protect your data privacy. I think that's what I hear you saying right now. And so if that's the case, then how do you do that? There are certainly things companies can do to help protect their users. So it's certainly the case that Facebook deploying end-to-end encryption for Messenger is a positive step and has its own merits on its own terms. There are also policy-based solutions they can pursue, which is saying, hey, we as a platform are not going to retain location data after, you know, let's say 30 days. If an individual is trying to make sure that they can protect themselves and engage in secure communications. There are um, end-to-end encrypted messaging uh, platforms out there. A popular one is Signal. Uh, You can also establish on that application sort of disappearing messages. And if uh, law enforcement applied for a search warrant and sent that search warrant to Signal, for example, there'd be very little data that Signal would be able to provide, right? They could not provide the contents of the messages. They could only provide some high-level metadata about when the user account was created and so on. So that kind of uh, messaging platform is probably what I would recommend for someone who is trying to engage in private and secure communications online. That's Logan Kepke. He's project director for Upturn. That is a nonprofit that advances social justice in technology, governance, and design. Logan Kepke, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I am so proud of Nicholas who are proud of being Nicholas. They are what God made them. New at 6, the GBI has now confirmed its investigation into a misconduct complaint against a West Point police officer. A homeowner claims ring doorbell camera video shows an officer saying the N-word and then throwing the camera into the bushes. That video has been posted to social media and shared hundreds of times. Fox 5's Alex Whitler joins us from the live desk with more. Alex? Courtney, the woman who lives in that home says she and her teenage son no longer feel comfortable living in West Point. Now that they've heard what an officer said outside of their house, she says she's already looking for a new city to live in. In a two-minute-long ring door cam clip, two West Point police officers arrive at a Booker Hills home. The first appears to be waiting for someone to come to the door. The second walks up and says something the GBI says is unintelligible. We've bleeped it for sensitivity. I was disgusted um, at the language and also the actions of the police. Whatever it was that officer said has deeply offended homeowner Tamisha Madden, who lives there with her 17-year-old son. 
What is it that you believe you heard? All these effing N-words has cameras in this neighborhood. Then the doorbell video shows what appears to be that officer throwing the camera into the bushes. Madden and her attorney believe he was trying to conceal evidence. To serve and protect, but you're calling me out of my name and also destroying my property. West Point police did confirm over the phone this is one of their officers, but didn't say much else as the GBI is now investigating. The GBI says officers were there to serve a warrant for Madden's son. It is not appropriate for public officials, particularly police officers, to make racially derogatory comments about anybody in the performance of their duties. The mother's attorney, Wendell Major, who has worked in law enforcement for more than three decades and is now chief for the Tarrant, Alabama Police Department, says these situations erode the community's trust in law enforcement. Young black men are accused of offenses on multiple occasions throughout our country, and they have to have the evidence that they didn't do anything wrong. Here we have a law enforcement officer in uniform, apparently in the performance of his duties, concealing evidence of actually what happened. That West Point officer is on administrative leave pending the GBI's investigation. Once the investigation is complete, authorities will give the case file up for review at the Coweta Judicial Circuit District Attorney's Office. At the live desk, Alex Whitler, Fox 5 News. All right, Alex, thanks. I don't think much of Al Sharpton. I just don't. Why not? Well, I'm going to put it to you this way. If a black person killed me, do you think Al Sharpton would help me? Absolutely not. He never stuck up for a white person. Mary Ellen is 93 and has lived her whole life in Bensonhurst. He had a whole crew and they started a whole riot here. It was terrible. But he was stabbed. He was stabbed. He should have been killed. There you go. It was people like me that would kill them. It takes a moment for that thought to sink in. An armed man was killed last week after trying to storm the FBI field office in Cincinnati. Federal prosecutors charged another man in Pennsylvania yesterday after he posted violent threats against FBI agents online. And U.S. authorities are now warning of an increase in threats to federal law enforcement after last week's court-authorized search of former President Trump's Florida home. But assessing which threats are credible and being able to respond to them is challenging. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us now. Hi, Odette. Hey, Juana. So, Odette, what can you tell us about the level and volume of threats that we are seeing right now? Well, we're seeing lots of calls to violence, um, particularly on alt-tech social platforms like Gab, Truth Social, and Telegram. You know, the volume this time isn't at the level it was in the lead up to January 6th, but some are saying that it feels similar. You know, we've seen these calls for civil war before, but now people are saying it's here and it's time to act. I think what's notable now, Juana, is the specificity of the targets. You know, people are calling out the FBI, um, the FBI agents involved in the search by name and even their family members. And it's worth noting that there is a history of anti-government movements and mistrust of the FBI among certain extremist pockets in the U.S., But the degree to which these views have now been taken up by a much larger portion of Americans is what's causing concern. 
So it's not, you know, domestic extremists in the way that we've thought about them before. It's more like what we saw last week in Cincinnati, you know, someone who seemingly self-radicalized and who appears to have acted on his own. Okay. So where then does that leave law enforcement in assessing what is a threat and what is not? So this is where things are tricky. Um, First, it's just impossible to continually continually track the huge volume of posts across platforms. Um, But there are also some other factors that make this particular domestic threat difficult to stop. One of them is that law enforcement today pretty much has to act instantaneously on a tip in order to stop a suspected attack from happening. Here's Donnell Harvin from the Rand Corporation. He's the former chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for Washington, D.C. There is often a brief period of time between radicalization and mobilization of violence that law enforcement has an opportunity to interdict that individual. Um, and that brief moment is is such a small window. We've seen where um, people go from radicalization to mobilization of violence very, very quickly. And Harvin points to last week's attempt in Cincinnati, where there was only a day or two between the individual's suspected online posts that indicated he was preparing for violence and when he actually attempted the attack. And that's really not much given the legal requirements for law enforcement to get involved. And what are those legal requirements? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, this is probably the biggest hurdle that we're seeing in the countering extremism world today, Juana. You know, for context, you have to remember that much of that infrastructure was built in response to 9-11, where the idea was to interdict plots by foreign entities or people who were influenced by them. You know, today, attention is on the heightened threat from domestic extremists. And you just can't use those same tools because Americans enjoy certain free speech and due process rights under the Constitution. So what that means is that in order to initiate surveillance or an investigation, law enforcement needs to be able to provide evidence of a credible and specific threat to get the authorization they need. So details like when and where an attack might happen. And often, Wana, those details just aren't there. NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you. Sure thing. The Turner Diaries. Sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Way Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours. And all of them are white supremacists. The January 6th committee hearings painted an elaborate and often damning portrait of former President Donald Trump's role in the insurrection. But race is also playing a central, if sometimes unspoken, role. NPR's Sandia Dirks has more. There's this striking moment back at the very beginning of the hearings in Senator Benny Thompson's opening statement. I'm from a part of the country where people justify the actions of slavery the Ku Klux Klan, and lynching. I'm reminded of that dark history as I hear voices today try and justify the actions of the insurrectionists on January 6, 2021. Thompson draws a direct line from the lost cause to the big lie. Hakeem Jefferson, a political scientist at Stanford, says Thompson's very presence as an elder black Southern man at the helm of the hearings holds meaning. To see someone who looks like Benny Thompson 
wield this amount of institutional power against a person like Donald Trump, who is awashed in the markings of whiteness and privilege and all that it affords. Whiteness, Jefferson says, is at the center of the events this hearing is interrogating. January the 6th was a racial backlash. More precisely, he says, it's part of an ongoing white backlash against the very perception of racial progress. Some white people are really concerned about a loss of power and status in American society. At the heart of January 6th, Jefferson says, is a story about power, white power. It's not about power that's maintained by burning crosses. It's about power that's maintained about telling some stories and not some others in schools. It's about the power to elect people who you think will do your bidding. Over on Fox News, hosts like Tucker Carlson, who has peddled almost every conspiracy and lie about January 6th, have consistently said that race or racism has nothing to do with it. Here he is in June, after falsely implying that the election could very well have been stolen. A lot of the protesters on January 6th were very upset about that. And they should have been. All of us should be. But the January 6th committee ignored all of that completely. Instead, on the basis of zero evidence, no evidence whatsoever, they blamed the entire riot on white supremacy. Of course, the January 6th committee hasn't really done that. The hearings haven't mentioned race much. And it is a central part of their case that rioters showed up precisely because they believed Trump's lie about a stolen election. But who believed that lie and why they believed it has everything to do with race, says Robert Pape, director of the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. What we're really observing are the consequences of the fear of white status decline. Pape has been researching those who were arrested for storming the Capitol. He says they don't fit the old profiles of extremism. The counties that lost the most non-Hispanic white population are the counties that produced the most January 6th insurrectionists. Most are white and male, but more than half are white-collar, doctors, lawyers, and they come from cities and suburbs, many from places Biden won. Pape says his research shows that a driving force among insurrectionists and those that support them is a fear of a white majority becoming a minority and having to give up power. These are the parts of the country where diversity is happening the fastest. This is dovetailing with rhetoric by politicians and and by media figures, stoking fear about the Great Replacement. To put it simply, they came from places that used to be almost all white and aren't anymore. Nearly 90 percent are not members of these militant extremist groups. That's the racist conspiracy theory that black and brown people are replacing white people as part of a nefarious democratic plan to take power and steal elections, a theory peddled by people like Tucker Carlson. And it's believed not just by many of the people who stormed the Capitol, but by the vast majority of Republicans. Here's political scientist Hakeem Jefferson again. What's dangerous is when a group like this begins to adopt the mindset or the rhetoric of an oppressed minority. Dangerous because Jefferson says when members of a group that still holds very real privilege, like white people, imagine themselves on the margins, that's when violent white nationalism takes hold. The narrative the January 6th committee has presented, for the most part, has been told in the voices of Republicans and former Trump loyalists. There was one notable exception, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss. 
I've always um, been told by my grandmother how important it is to vote and how people before me, a lot of people, um, older people in my family did not have that right. Moss and her mom are both poll workers who Trump attacked by name, leading to death threats and racist attacks. Political scientist Akeem Jefferson says what these two women represent is not a political party or a person in power, but the right of average people to vote, a right that for many was only achieved within recent memory. So many Black people and Black women in particular work on these front lines of democracy. Jefferson says our fragile and incomplete multiracial democracy is in peril. It's not just January 6th. It's also a slow-moving threat from the right, the Supreme Court, gerrymandering voter suppression laws, like some of the ones now on the books in Georgia, overseen by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He was lauded at the hearings for standing up for democracy and against Trump, but back home, the laws he's championed have made it harder for people of color to vote. January the 6th was a racial project, but the everyday undoing and attacks on American democracy are also a part of a racial project. So, yeah, it's the elephant in the room, but it's the whole damn room. This is all about race all the time. It continues a larger, longer battle that has never really ended over whose votes get counted and whose votes get to count. I'm Cynthia Dirks, NPR News. Most of us have not even seen an elephant. I'm no fan of the circus the zoo. I've been to both. No fan of that. Let the critters go. But I mean, really, got enough niggers in cages. We don't need to have the tigers and elephants caged up, too. Um, But elephant in the room? And that's such a tacky metaphor. It's like you can't even talk about what is it? You can't if you're going to have to talk about racism, you don't say racism. You say race elephant in the room, or if you can say racism, you know, racism is alive and well. Context of white supremacy, poor and pitiful. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 20, 2022, So I have been told, Anthony Devron Payne, senior, for sure, still with us. Our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, suggestions, questions to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Give out the number again. I was listening to that last report on the role of racism, white supremacy, elephant in the room. That's why we are white guests only, too. But I was listening to that final report And they were speaking with white male Robert Pape about his research on white supremacy racism, areas where they had declining populations of white people. They had more participants in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. I read 
from his research on the program before. In fact, as soon as I heard his name, Savings in Learning, I remembered I emailed him December 13, 2021 to see if we could get him as a guest on the program. And he said he already had research and writing commitments, so he can't do any media projects until later this year. I will write him again. Anyway, I have to go back. I shared the report where he talked about because I thought that was so important. I mean, it was could not be more direct. Dr. Frances Cress Wellsing, she was with us. Take a bow. I mean, it was. He should have said her name. His data was, hey, the areas where the white population dropped more non-white people. These are the places that sent lots of angry white people to Washington, D.C. 2021, January 6th. White genetic annihilation. Just a theory, but wow, seems to be quite a bit of corroborating evidence. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. A few things before we get started. Meta. Facebook does not fund the context of white supremacy. We don't get laptops, iPhones, bag of peanuts, nothing. No count Mark Zuckerberg. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. Hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot. Dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com PayPal button is in the top right corner directly beneath that you'll see the links for PayPal cash app and Venmo enormous thanks to the many investors all over the planet uh, soon maybe it'll be all throughout the galaxy uh, who have invested uh, kept the cows on the air for 13 plus years. Uh, hopefully, we have provided accurate, constructive, and been consistent in both regards information about what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be white. You can also hit the blog, uh, excuse me, the wish list, Amazon.com, Gus T. Renegade, again, enormous. Thanks to all of the investors who have nabbed an item or three from the wish list over the years. Huge thanks. Hope the program remains worthy of your time and energy. Again, the Zuckerbergs, they do not nab wish list items for us either. Uh, let's see. One, I said it, said again. So I said earlier this week, Wooly. In the word God, should have given it correctly. It is listed under pull the wool over your there 
eyes, however it is, and he gives the detail. Uh, now, I didn't look at my word guide. I'm just telling you. So you'll have to tell me that, Gusty, you know, you are incorrect, but I'm saying it is there, and it's under pull the wool. If anyone has their word guide handy, let's flip and see. Pull the wool, P section, right? Please pull. There we go. Uh, and if it's lengthy, because some of these has a lot of detail, which is super important, only one paragraph. If it's a long paragraph that takes up the full page, five sentences, that's it, just to confirm, yes, it is there, and then why. I brought this up because the book that we had on this week, Curtis Wilkie, he had in there that they had a woolly belief in white supremacists. Like, woolly? What? <laughs> Words are important. And when I asked Mr. Wilkie, he could, he's a journalist. He's written six books. When I asked him, he struggled to explain it. In fact, he said, man, I can't even really think of a synonym. He finally, I think, said vague. That would be if he had to replace, but pull the wool over their eyes. Mm. Anyway, speaking of the book, uh, When Evil Lived in Laurel, that was the book that we talked about with Mr. Wilkie. That last segment, they talked about voting, and they said, man, all of this and intimidating black people, terrorizing black people from voting and not counting their votes. Black people have had to fight to vote, and black women at the forefront of that struggle. Now, Victim said that again. Now, that's why it's white guests only. Curtis Wilkie said, man, his book was about Medgar Evers dying trying to see if we can help get black people to vote. His book, matter of fact, in the subtitle is Vernon Damer. I forgot his name because in the book, every, every paragraph, I was going to say every page, is no, 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 every paragraph, we got to do something about the Damer nigger. We're going to kill the Damer nigger. We're going to firebomb the Damer nigger's house where his young children and wife live, incidentally. But we're going to firebomb the Damer nigger. We will plan how we will kill the Damer nigger. Why? What, what did the Damer nigger do? Oh, he was trying to get black people to vote. I never even knew his name until I read this book this week. I don't have these white people on just as I like talking to old crotchety white people like I am trying to learn about racism, white supremacy, what it means to be white, but also I didn't even know. I didn't even know his first name to forget. I said I read the book. They called him the Damer nigger so many times I forgot. Oh, his name is Vernon Damer. I was just the Damer nigger. But he was trying to get black people to vote, and that is why they firebombed his house with his children and black wife inside and killed him. And Charles Eddie Moore and Henry Hezekiah D., who were mentioned in two of the books that we just talked about with different white authors, they don't even get named. Same thing. I didn't even know who they were. They get accused of running guns to help black people in fighting against racism, white supremacy, and voting in Mississippi and get beaten and killed in Mississippi. So I think there are a lot of black males and females who have sacrificed a lot to try to vote. Not that that even solved the problem. Bob Moses, I mean, Jesus Christ. 
all those black males just get erased? We will shoot back. You had black males who were about black self-defense in Mississippi. All that gets erased. Kwame Ture was there. All those black males. Charles E. Cobb, he was a guest on the program. Michael Thelwell, SNCC. All that just gets erased. Black females at the forefront. Not that they should be denied, but I mean, my gosh, you got a lot of black males who were killed trying to help all these folks get to vote. Jesus, they can't even, can we at least say his name? Medgar Evers, one time, just one time for Medgar Evers. Worthless Negro from Mississippi, I'm sure, I'm sure. Charles Evers, even, his brother, Jesus. Anyway, worthless Negro, too, I'm sure. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Another worthless Negro, N.D.B. Connolly. Man, Cal- it, it, yes, Gus T. hates black females and LGBTQ and all of that. We have been on our grind for 13 and a half years. So I go check the newspaper, attempt to check the newspaper as often as possible, see what's you know happening in the world, try to be informed about things. I go check this week. Oh, my goodness, I'm stunned. Let's see. The report, I think I posted it uh, repeatedly so that people could check it out. Uh, we had NDB Connolly as a guest. Nathan, uh, when he was a guest on the program, he was using the initials for his book, NDB. is his name, so I mean, whatever. Nathan D.B. Connolly, black male. He was a guest on the program way back in 2015, seven years ago, ancient history. We haven't solved this problem yet. Terrible. His book, A World More Concrete, easily one of the best books I have ever read on white supremacy racism. is not even close. Full title, A World More Concrete, Real Estate and the Remaking of Jim Crow South Florida. Uh, again, he was with us April 2015. Uh, in fact, the cover art on the book It has where they put a playground for black children in South Florida, Miami, I believe, and they built it beneath an underpass. You're supposed to clap. That's progress for for the black Floridians. Now, so you don't have a play. Bravo. Have fun beneath the underpass. Hey, don't have to worry if it rains. Hmm. A world more concrete and... One of the best books I've read. That's one of those. You should have that if you are a Floridian, have connections to that area. You should have The Beast in Florida, Dr. Marvin Dunn. Ooh, that's a cowbell. That's a painful cowbell, too. Like, oof. But anyway, that's uh, Dr. Marvin Dunn, The Beast in Florida, incredible scholarship. He was a guest on the program in 2013, asterisk there, because that was right in the middle of the Trayvon Martin murder trial, Florida history. Uh, and then you should also have a world more concrete in your library, mandatory if you have offspring uh, or attempting to rear them in the Sunshine State. They should read these books and do a report, maybe read them repeatedly. Anyway, so he talked on that program about how white people, they get more skilled, more refined at stealing property from black people as time goes on. He even put the bombing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in that context. Lots of black property theft there. The article that was in the paper 
just literally uh, days ago. Uh, let's see. I just I keep pulling it up, and then I move off of the – let's try it again. Okay, yes, there we go. A owner, $472,000 with a white – oh, it, sorry, I chopped off top of it. Home appraised with a black owner. $472,000. Not bad. I could never even afford a broom closet there, right? Okay. With a white owner, $750,000. That is more than a quarter million dollar Difference. He didn't say he added a jacuzzi, swimming pool, ivory gazebo, statue of Orenthal James Simpson, nothing. Just find a white person to lie. Say it's your house. Increase of over a quarter million dollars in the value of the property. I'm not going to read the full report. I did post. You should read it all. Last summer, Nathan Conley and his wife, Shania Mott, welcomed an appraiser into their house in Baltimore, hoping to take advantage of historically low interest rates and refinance their mortgage. They believe that their house improved with a new $5,000 tankless water heater and $35,000 in other renovations was worth much more than the $450,000 they paid for it in 2017. Home prices have been on the rise nationwide since the pandemic. In Baltimore, they have gone up 42% in the past five years, according to Zillow.com. But 2020 Valuations, a Maryland appraisal company, put the home's value at $472,000, and in turn, Loan Depot, a mortgage lender, denied the couple a refinance loan. Dr. Conley said he knew why. He and his wife and three children aged 15, 12, and 9 are black. I would, victims guaranteed qualified, but man, this isn't a quote, so maybe he didn't even say it that way. It's not because they are black. It is because we are in a system of white supremacy. Words are important. This here broadcast is counter-racist literacy. In my view, it should never be stated that way. It is never. They devalued my home because I am black. It is because they are practicing racism. It is nothing defective about me. And it's really, it's not even because I'm so-called black. It is because they are racist. I could be the blackest, in quotes, person that ever lived in the history of the world. If we were in a system of justice, that wouldn't matter at all. And it shouldn't. The only reason that this matters, we're in a system of white supremacy racism. That's where the focus would be, should be, excuse me, not they did this because we're black. They did this because we're in a system of white supremacy. White people practice racism. All areas of people activity. Continuing. A professor.
of history at John Hopkins University. I feel like that's a pause for Henrietta Lacks. E. Continuing. University, Dr. Connolly is an expert on redlining and the legacy of white supremacy in American cities. And much of his research focuses on the role of race in the housing market. Months after the first appraisal, the couple applied for another refinance loan, removed family photos, and had a white male colleague, another John Hopkins professor, stand in for them. The second appraiser valued the house at $750,000. So it was below a half mil with the Negras. Just get a white person, not even just one white man, almost at a mill. This week, Dr. Connolly and Dr. Martin, you got two doctors. I thought it was just the Negras that are shiftless and don't have any money and, you know, dropped out of high school and did crack cocaine their whole life. We are the ones. Lame can't get it together. We are the ones that have problems with racism. If you pulled your pants up and acted right, you would be straight. Hey, hey, you got two doctors here. Hey. Yeah, worthless Negroes in Maryland. It's right next to Virginia. Same thing. Uh, Let's see. We were clearly aware of appraisal discrimination, said Dr. Connolly, 44, but to be told in so many words that our presence and the life we built in our home brings the property value down, it's an absolute gut punch. All in quotes. The home appraisal industry, which relies partly on subjective opinions, oh man, <laughs> discretion to translate home values into dollars and cents, has faced a firestorm of criticism over the past two years. Firestorm? Mm-hmm. More than 97% of home appraisers are. They don't look like Al Sharpton. <laughs> That's a good one. Thank you. Thank you. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and since the summer of 2020, when conversations on race and discrimination in America rose to the forefront following the murder of George Floyd, I think that's really tacky and lame, too. Didn't they rise to the forefront with Trayvon Martin two times for today? Didn't that happen? And Hurricane Katrina, even Kanye West, remember he came out and said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. Am I making a (laughs) – didn't it rise to the forefront when – President Obama was elected. Maybe I didn't. What was that guy's name in Chicago? Reverend Wright. Damn America! That didn't all that did that. Maybe I dreamed all of that. Continuing. Uh, let's see. All of that nonsense. Uh, some have filed lawsuits, and the Biden administration in March announced a set of planned reforms to overhaul the appraisal industry and dismantle systemic bias. They didn't say systemic white supremacy, racism. Uh-huh. Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott live in the North Baltimore, North Baltimore neighborhood of Homeland, known for its strong public schools and colonial architecture, which has earned it a place on the National Register of Historic Places. I wonder if this is the same Baltimore where they accused all of them. They suspected them of cheating in schools because the children were doing well and these were well-to-do parents like this. Hmm worthless Negroes from Maryland. I bet they're cheating. I'm going to have to check to see, is this, is this the same area where that happened? We'll come back to that later. Let's see. A majority of their neighbors, are, back up, let's see, uh, strong public schools and colonial architecture. I wonder what that is. We have any folks with architecture degrees? 
one of my classmates at UVA, architecture degree, which I have to see what she thinks about that, has earned it a place on the National Register of Historic Places. A majority of their neighbors are white. According to their complaint, which was filed in Maryland District Court on Monday, the couple applied to refinance their mortgage with Loan Depot in May 2021. The lender approved a loan at a rate of 2.25% and, according to the complaint, told the couple that their home was likely now worth $550,000 or more. To conduct the appraisal, Loan Depot hired 2020 valuations as a subcontractor. Mr. Lanham conducted the inspection himself on June 14, 2021, according to the complaint. Dr. Connolly, Dr. Mott, and their three children were home during the visit. In a system of white supremacy racism, that is probably way too many black people to have present. Like, ooh wee. <laughs> you just look like, oh my God, you got all these niggas. And then you, they got, I bet you, they had the audacity. To, there's nothing worse in the world than an uppity nigger. I bet you, Dr. Connolly, Dr. Mott, black female wife, I bet you they had the audacity. Put their degrees up on the. Who, what kind of uppity coon buys property and then you're going to put your diplomas up on the wall? I'm a white man. I got to come in here and make it up. And they got nigger diplomas just saying, doctor degrees too. So they might have a lot of diplomas just hanging all on the wall. And I'm supposed to look at this and make an appraisal. Nigger accomplishment. Educated niggers. Oh, oh, oh. I could just vomit. He might have been one of the ones that was at January 6th. We don't even know. Let's see. Mr. Lanham, they were at home. I said it might be too many black people. And the house was also filled with family photos, children's drawings of figures with dark skin, a poster of the film Black Panther, and literature by authors Dr. Mott lectures on literature and Africana studies. It would have been obvious to anyone visiting that the home belonged to a black family. The complaint reads, the appraisal came back just $22,000 more than they had paid and Loan Depot based its rejection on the couple's application on the low number. The couple criticized the way Mr. Lanham came up with his appraisal. Home appraisers frequently rely upon the sales comparison approach in which they weigh real estate against the sale prices of similar nearby homes to determine value. In Mr. Lanham's appraisal, he selected three homes with values ranging from 435000 to 545000 a fourth comparable, which sold for 650000 $650, was ultimately not used in his valuation. The first home used the complaint argues would be considered a fixer-upper, which the home of Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott is not. The second is outside the boundaries of the homeland neighborhood amid a majority black census of block homes. In the third, he deducted $50,000 from the comparison amount because Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott's home faces a busy street, a deduction. The complaint says that is excessive and is inconsistent with proper appraisal practices. Another $20,000 was deducted for the quality of construction. 
all of the selected comparable homes, the complaint says, were of lower quality than Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott's home, and the appraisal incorrectly stated that their home had not received any updates for 15 years. I will stop there, even though there's quite a bit more detail, but this sort of thing happens all the time. And these these are black people who have doctorate degrees. I mean, generally, you would not have a black person. Oh, my God. Dr. Mott's father is a Vietnam veteran. <laughs> Jesus, Lord. Anyway, uh, you would not have black people with a doctorate degree who study racism, white supremacy, where this is happening, specifically studying racism, white supremacy in housing, where this is happening. That's generally not going to be the case. But well, I just I thought that was staggering. Hopefully we can all pay attention to this case. If you live in Maryland, oh, required, sit down, talk to your children, because this impacted their whole family, right? The children were there, so they saw this guy. I'm sure they've had to talk to their children about this. Talk to you, really everybody, but especially if you live in Maryland, get this article, New York Times. Uh, in fact, it should be, uh, you can get the Baltimore Sun. I think that's the, one of the local papers there. Get see what the local paper has to say. It might they might have you know better information or what have you, but get both of them, pick the better one, and sit down. Great way to talk about racism, white supremacy, and something different. If you don't want to do the police and lots of blood and gore, hey, where you put your head down at night? I mean, wow, that is important. White supremacy, racism for sure. Quarter of a million dollars. For sure, for sure. All righty. Uh, let's see. I will share a few thoughts, and then we will nab folks who dialed in if they have thoughts, commentary. Hopefully, folks will not be spectating if you have thoughts, views to share. Uh, let's see. The report where they talked about the young fella, black male, uh, non-white male, Jacoby. He's 14. He was out fundraising for the football team in uh, Elaine, Connecticut, and he was allegedly shot at, called a nigger when he walks on the property. He's in his high school football jersey and everything. That would be another reason not to be in any of these high school and school athletics and what have you. Other ways to get exercise and do team sports and all of that. All of, all of that, those activities put you in position for a variety of abuse and mistreatment. That aside, I almost prefaced that report with the great Sean Fury's biracial because cowbell, uh, or I can't say Mr. Young Jacoby, 14-year-old, has a white mother, Kelly Jackson. At least that's what it looked like to me. She would be definitely accepted as white. That huge impact for you all couldn't see that. I did see the video talking about, oh, he says this has happened before, and, you know, that's a shame. It shouldn't have to be that way, and all the rest. Like, man, I cannot even imagine being in Connecticut. Uh, I suspect this could be an area where there are not a whole lot of black people, and you, go, you have a white mom who's confounding you about this whole situation, and you go out, this sort of thing happens all the time. 
you get threat. He's going to shoot you and all that. They go tell the police or whatever. Well, you know, it's he said, she said, you know, he could have lied. Nothing we can do. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then we roll on. Matter of fact, Paul, remember Omar Thornton? Not the same part of Connecticut, but 2010. Maybe folks are too young. You can search that in your own time. He had a white uh, sex partner as well. Uh, next, they had the report on the death of attorney Fred Gray and all of his contributions. I had no idea he represented Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks. Like, why? And Dr. King? And all this. I mean, that is amazing. Wow. Um, seems like he might have contributed to helping black people to vote as well. They talked about him, attorney Fred Gray. Yes, maybe, maybe. Hmm. Anyway, uh, they had all the singing and, you know, we still overcome another, like, get you know, I know I'm a worthless Negro from Virginia, so when I am gone, there's not going to be a big hubbub and, you know, all of that. But, man, like, I would like, like, no singing. Dr. Welsing said no dancing. Like, I do not want to get together and sing uh, for any passing of any non-white people like that. Like, really? Really, like, let's let that ride. It's almost 2025. VGQ, I, maybe I'm saying that because I can't sing, but I do not want to hear any more of that. Uh, for black people who did what they could to try to solve this problem, all of us so far have failed. We just keep working to solve the problem. Then we can cut loose, sing, dance, all of that. Until then, really, I, I just it feels so plantational uh, to me. I could be wrong. VGQ for Gus as well. Let's see. Also want to make sure that I got in. We did just complete Absolute Madness. I'll take a bow. Second, uh, I think that is the second best job that I did facilitating uh, book club in our decade tenure here at the Cows uh, with the Catherine Massey Book Club. That book, I said, wow, with all of the, the zany things, <laughs> amazing information about Buffalo history, that book has a racist dog. Literally. They say in the book, oh, my God, I don't know what's wrong with him. He just goes crazy. Every time a black person goes by, I take a chunk out of him. I don't know how many book clubs where if you have been listening, racist dog. Oh, man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have heard that one before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I could be totally wrong. There are lots of great book clubs and people who do a way better job with me. Some folks even have a, a literature degree and what have you. But, man, at least in terms of subject matter covered, I don't know that too many programs. Like, yes, racist dog, check. Context of white supremacy. Next. Uh, talk about media literacy. So the report where they were talking about so-called uh, immigrants coming here, and lots of folks are upset, racial narrowing. So much of that was focused on uh, Republicans being upset about these immigrants, and even huge pause. We have been told relentlessly at times, conflict in Ukraine, Russia's invading, and what are we going to do? And Oh, my goodness. They've been talking about this for a long time, or at least they have here in Seattle. Maybe they aren't in your part of the world, but they have here. 
Okay, they do all that chatting, and, and they say, oh, my goodness, we got to have, you know, programs, letting some of the Ukraine uh, refugees, they got to come here, and, oh, we've got to help, and putting the flags up. Is, is that just me? Am I cooning? I thought I'd seen that. I didn't hear one word about them anywhere in the day. I'm tired. These Ukrainian moochers, and I mean, gee whiz, like we've opened the door and all that, but I mean, really, how many of these folks do we have to take? And we, Canada, come on, let's all pitch in. Take some of your Ukrainian brothers. I didn't hear one word. Which immigrants are you talking about? That's another one where they slink through the whole report. Didn't say racism, white supremacy, all this, Republicans this and Republicans that. and Oh, we don't want these immigrants. Who are you talking about? Be specific. On both ways, because I don't think it's so-called Republicans. I think it's individuals classified as white. And then, again, which immigrants? Next, they had the report talking about the uh, dirt biking. I don't do any of that, so I had to make sure I got the, you know, whatever terms. They got the on-road and off and all the rest of it. But the dirt biking and diversity. They do all this. Oh, we got the tubby people. We want to make sure they're included. You go dirt biking and everybody there is small and you're overweight. I didn't even say that. You're fat and now you come out here and we got five fat people so you feel great. I'm tubby. They're tubby. Woohoo! You know, I'll go dirt biking. Okay. And they got, we got the LGBTQ and all this. And yes, black people. Yes, the black people. Conflation. This happens so many times. Well, they will start off talking about we got to get black teachers and all this, and then we end up talking about we got to get people who are disabled and make sure that we got folks included who are in a wheelchair and the elderly. And I don't have any problem with them. They shouldn't be mistreated. But I mean, let's be specific with what we're talking about. They find lots of ways of deliberately minimizing the focus when it's time to Let's help those who need the most help in a system of white supremacy. We don't want to help the black people. Let's see ways that we can push in anyone but them so we can dilute this, minimize this, so that we're not really talking about white supremacy racism and or we are not talking about helping individuals classified as black. Uh, Let's see. And, And even within that, they go, they talk to black female Lisa Muhammad. They say, Miss Muhammad is a single black mother, of course, of course, triggered tears and clapping with her story about what gravel racing meant after her husband's recent death. Mm -hmm. Probably from selling crack cocaine and trying to rape a white woman. Let's see. So it came up two times. I was going to say it when I heard it the first time, but it came up twice in the reports. When they had the first report about uh, black mental health, which is hugely important. They were talking about postpartum uh, depression for black females. Hugely important. In fact, we've talked about this a bunch. Dorothy Roberts killing the black body, one of the first 50 programs that we had. August. August 2009, Dorothy Roberts, she's been on the program three times. And then we read Medical Apartheid, Harry Day Washington. I mean, subject well covered over the years. And I'm a certified prenatal prenatal yoga instructor, so I mean, hey, 
all of that said, it was stated that black people have a stigma about mental illness. That was said twice. I'm somewhat leery when I hear people just say things where everybody kind of says the same thing. I think they have one of those cliches is when everyone thinks alike, no one thinks. That's one. Mm-hmm. In a universe where there are infinite possibilities of what one can say, I find it suspicious, particularly when I hear victims of racism when they say the same thing as it relates to non-white people, black people. Black people have a stigma about mental health, whatever that means. I never heard third-generation physician, general and child psychiatrist, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing say, black people have a stigma about mental health. I do not ever, ever remember hearing her say that at any point. 31 times she was a guest on this program, not once. I do remember her saying all the time, every time she was a guest here and when I heard her on other platforms, black people do not qualify for mental health because we are subject to white supremacy. That's what I remember her saying. Dr. Welsing is a loon, right? She's crazy. Ah, Heard that a bunch. Hey, let's get a white person. Protest psychosis? History of black people? Treptomania? Hey, 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 hey. Forget that. Toss the white man aside. I just said... Harriet A. Washington, medical apartheid. She talks about draftomania in her book. Oh, you're trying to get off the plantation? You're crazy. Maybe that has something to do with how black people think about mental health. Now, let me get back to the white person. Protest psychosis. Black people, you're upset about racism? Oh, you got to be crazy. Draftomania. Eh. Maybe that has something to do. Maybe even the white supremacy racism, period. That's another segment. Sleep through the whole thing. Racism? That's what's causing these mental health problems. And white people did not, even if black people were in love. Let's talk about mental health issues all day long, all the way back to Frederick Douglass times, even if that were the case. Do black people have mental health options like that? Matter of fact, I just bragged about the book club, right? What have we done? Stand by your work. We read Dr. Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. They require that to be read in school. That's an old book, right? Lots of people required to read that one, right? Or have or said they have or whatever, especially since she passed away. What's in that there book? The grandsister, she says she couldn't even go to the dentist. She had to go to the veterinarian to get a tooth removed. What type of mental health service? Matter of fact, you want to talk about mental health. That is a mental health visit right there. I can't even go to the dentist. We got to go to the veterinarian and got to be quiet about that. 
and then tell me that black people two times got a stigma about mental health. Particularly after the book that I just said we finished, talk about mental health. You got white serial killers, and they are afforded more sympathy about their mental health concerns, allegedly, than black people. Anywho, all for mental health, whoopee, we talked about, we had third-generation physician, general and child psychiatrist as a guest 31 times. Mental health, very important. Uh, Let's see. Now, environmental racism. They had that segment on Houston. Emily Foxhill, white woman, she did the big report. They said there is a historic black community is in a toxic cluster. Once again, you do not have a community for about a billion reasons, but I mean for sure, for sure, if you, the place where you live, that is designated as a historic Negro community is toxic, and it apparently took you years to even get the information, oh, yeah, we're being poisoned. That is not a community, or again, I don't know what your definition of community is. If it's just a group of people together, thrown together, you didn't even pick to be together, someone else threw you in this area and can toss you into another area whenever they feel like it and can abuse and mistreat you the entire time that you're being tossed around, I don't know how that qualifies as a community. Unless, I mean, you must have a really wacky definition, concept of community. Words are important. Anything else I need to get in right now? May I get to the rest of that later? Uh, no metaphors for the broadcast. We had uh, lots of them included in the report. Elephant in the room. They went with the classic. Might as well have got that one. Racism is alive and well. Being direct whiteness even got that one at the end, too. I don't know what that is. Dr. Wells, he said, are we talking about cotton candy? Clouds? Whiteness? What? Global power dynamic. System of individuals who classify themselves as white. Purpose of mistreating everyone they say is not white. That's what we're talking about. Words are extremely important. That is the crux of how white people practice racism, being deceptive with words. Counter-racism, same thing. Scientific, precise, exact with words. I will give reminders. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943. Pound. Press star 6-1 if you would like to participate. I guess I'll ask, let's see, I'll ask for the folks, if you missed it, we had someone who asked us yesterday. This is for neutralizing workplace racism. You get a promotion. 
you work with other black people, non-white people, they wanted that position that you got. A white person, of course, did the picking. Uh, do you tell this non-white person, or do you wait, let the white person, you know, make the announcement, email, how are they going to do it? I was of the opinion, let the white person do it. Uh, also, I guess you don't have rapport with this person. It's not like this is your, your homie, you all been kicking it, hanging out, and all that sort of thing. You all, you know, are just, you all don't have rapport. That being the case, I said I would let the white person say, tell them, inform them. Uh, they're not going to get upset or they will be less likely to get upset with that white person. And then you can just observe, see if there's any change in their behavior, monitor. If there is a change, you can address it then. If not, no need to even say anything. We can just continue being courteous and professional. Uh, everyone who responded said they would let the white person uh, do the informing. Uh, if folks have a thought on that, if you've been in that situation, certainly you can share, but uh, feel free, let us know. Let's see. Uh, retired firefighter with us. I'll nab other hands as we proceed. Greetings, everyone. Uh, like uh, most of the others, uh, I would have uh, the white employers to do all of the explaining uh, they created the job perhaps created the position uh so they are duly responsible uh if something like that occurs uh now if it was somebody that i knew prior to uh getting on that job uh at some point in time that i i mean i, I that i knew very well very well to the level of a couple of my uh a couple of guys that I worked with uh that I knew them very well then I would probably have some sort of discussion with them on the matter but other than that you know other than that that, that would be then the employer's uh responsibility uh weekly uh, account. Uh, first, I will start with uh, Miss Courtney Taylor being uh, arrested in Hawaii. If one is not familiar with that name, that is the white woman who stabbed to death. Uh, her quote-unquote black male boy, boyfriend, uh, Mr. Christian Oben, Obaselli, uh down here in South Florida. Uh, she was detained it, uh, and then it, it released in a short period of time. Uh, she, uh, from my understanding, something that I don't know a whole lot about, uh, is a Instagram uh, person who's on Instagram a lot and has over a million followers, uh, and she went right back to doing whatever you do on Instagram. Uh, and uh, I'm, from my understanding, I think she makes pretty good money. Uh, and she was in Hawaii at the time. I don't know nobody who goes to Hawaii for any type of mental 
uh, uh, mental uh, help at all. But anyway, she was in Hawaii uh, when uh, this arrestment, uh, arresting uh, report came out and supposed to be uh, forced to have to come back to South Florida. Albeit, I do not trust uh, whatever may come out of it based on the past behavior of the person who is the top enforcement official in Miami-Dade County, uh, which is also a white female. Um, Number two, uh, there was a law enforcement official who was shot to death in the line of duty uh, a couple of days ago, uh, maybe three or four days ago, uh, a firefighter for the city of Miami, I believe, uh, put on a uh, some sort of account. I don't know if Facebook or whatever. Uh, his uh, uh, views about law enforcement uh, that uh, was considered to be something that is described as disparaging, and he was fired. Uh, the way that uh, the fire department or some other job similar to that would do that is would, would be to say that it would be hard for anybody to work with that person. Uh, of course, most of the calls that the fire department go on, the police are also or on the same call, and uh, there probably would be some problems uh, and because they would not keep this information that he wrote uh, secret, <laughs> uh, albeit the uh, person that I'm talking about is a white male. Uh, the reason why I brought it up is because he is gaining a lot of support. He is gaining a lot of support, even to the standpoint of a uh, drive to raise funds. Uh, and I was just thinking, in an alternative way, if that was a black person, his life would be in danger, literally, <laughs> uh, by writing such a report. Uh, and uh, let alone talking about somebody donating money towards him. Uh, my last uh, report is uh, this uh, last vi- this uh, late latest violent uh, enactment over uh, a little league uh, uh, football game in this case, but it doesn't matter on what sport. Uh, this type of foolishness takes place has been taking place uh, for several decades. Uh, where people who are identified as parents are more silly and stupid than than a child can even think of uh, to the standpoint of actually uh, a murder would take place uh, over such a, such an event to to the standpoint where I think uh, the whole idea of little league sports should be eliminate it. I don't see the necessity for it anyway. 
even if something called sports, organized sports, was uh, to be uh, continued, I don't see any purpose of Little League sports at all anyway. As you stated, uh, that there's plenty of other ways that a child can be involved into healthy activities, healthy physical activities, without having such things. Uh, There are not regulated and supervised uh, at an adequate point that it should be. Uh, I mean, it's even far more worse than grade school. Uh, At least you're dealing with uh, employees that do get checked now with all of the problems that took place in the past, you know, instilled in, in somewhat in the present when it comes to public schools or high school level or middle school level organized sports. But Little League is very little, very little checking uh, with whoever is involved directly with children, and then parents don't have any checking at all. And so, therefore, I would eliminate it totally. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Wow. Wow. I had some other things to say, but that discombobulated me a little bit. This is a retired firefighter, unless we got some body snatching uh, going on, and, you know, somebody kind of took over him for a little while and got him saying something else. But it does sound like him, uh, who's, you know, been in – coaching football so long and told us so many stories and all the rest of it. But I did see the incident that he is talking about down in Dallas. We had that report about the whites only sign in Dallas. Um, I'm just reading a little bit from the Dallas morning news. Uh, Talib brothers bullying was problem before the youth football coaches death officials say uh, goes on and says it was a meaningless scrimmage between a pair of nine year olds. Nine. Nine. I mean, (laughs) man, I have seen all kinds of things, Um, you know, competitive activities and what have you. But like at nine, it really cannot be that. And man, I think Gus T had been saying like at nine, shouldn't he be playing tackle football? Like... At the most, I think, flag football, brain damage, brain that, in fact, like, for reals, for reals? Brain damage have anything to do with why this happened? Person do the shooting, did he have any history of playing football? Just questions, all question mark on all that. Back to the report. Nine-year-olds playing football from teams from different leagues on a sun-baked, dingy yellow field at Lancaster Community. But there's that word again, community, that ended with countless lives forever changed. Coaches, players, fans, and officials will never forget the day they saw a coach dying on the field, his body riddled with bullets. Michael Hickman, a 43-year-old father and grandfather, what a disgrace, expected to enjoy an afternoon of football with his family. He coached his son, Little Mike, and the rest of Dragon Elite Academy players as they prepared for the season while his wife, Kenyatta, video, oh, God, 
videotaped the game. The Dragons won the game, but Hickman, whose death last weekend made national headlines, didn't make it home. Yakub, Yakub, Y-A-Q-U-B. My apologies. Talib, the older brother of former NFL star Akib Talib, was arrested on a murder charge Monday after allegedly shooting Hickman during an altercation after the game. Talib has turned himself into authorities where he's awaiting a bond hearing. According to the arrest warrant, Lancaster police responded to a shooting at 8.09 Saturday evening. They found Hickman suffering from gunshot wounds to his chest back and forearm. Hickman was taken to Methodist Central Hospital in Dallas where he died at 8.47 p.m. This kind of violence is not happening just in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Two weeks ago, shots were fired near a youth football game in Pittsburgh and in late July, three people in Oakland were wounded by gunfire at a youth football game. In May, two people in Virginia were wounded at a flag... doesn't even matter. Flag football game in October 2020, one person was killed and another person wounded at a youth football game in Jacksonville, Florida. It's sad. I've been around the Little League circuit a long time, and this is something we could have stopped 10 years ago, said Jermaine Milner, who played football with Hickman as a kid and coached in Deion Sanders' youth football and baseball organization for years. They need to have games at stadiums instead of fields where you just walk up to it. They need metal detectors and they need real police officers. The leagues can afford it with all the fees they charge. They need to stop being cheap. And I'll stop there. I'll just say, like, for reals, for nine year olds, you might even have some folks who are still struggling with bedwetting. For nine-year-olds, if I got to be wanted and go through a metal detector to see nine-year-olds who I guess, according to the report, may indeed be playing flag football, I will never be at a game, and I mean, woo. You thought I was saying it before. All this stuff should be trashed. Oh, I mean, disgrace of disgrace. I mean, everything about this. Same thing I said with the midnight basketball. Are you serious? In 2025, midnight basketball. It's not even that serious. Like, go to bed. Nine years old? And I get so upset about a game between not. Did you have money back on these nine-year-olds? I wouldn't care if my child played, like, unless somebody broke out a razor and cut them on the field or something like that. Like, are you serious? Shot down on a field where... They said the game was over. You could have hit one of the children, I guess. I mean, maybe your aim is great. They said his body was riddled with bullets. And then, thankfully, his wife can get that all on video. Like, yes, last moments. Didn't want to miss that. Be great for the investigation, I'm sure. Monsters and monstrosities. Now, again, I'm being totally a thousand percent serious. So 
did this shooter play football? I'm not saying that's why they did this, but hey, brain damage. What a disgrace. Wow. That type of event, like with the details, I get you, retired firefighter. That would be enough for me to say, yeah, I'm done with this too. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I guess we can, you know, see how all of that unfolds. Uh, folks who have children, that, that would be one to talk about if they're in the football and all of that. Like, wow. Wow. That is something to talk about for sure. Mm, mm, mm. Context of white supremacy, monsters and monstrosities. Uh, the number is 720-716-7300. Mm, wow. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I guess I can't even just focus on the one because I said this is a pretty widespread thing uh in terms of seeing this they had did you uh did you you heard about this one in jacksonville uh florida retired firefighter the the let's see the one that they mentioned in october of 2020 where they killed a person and wounded somebody else in jacksonville gus i i haven't but i i've been aware i've 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 been involved with football since 1970 when i was 13 years old, either as a player or a coach. And there's nothing that I haven't seen dealing with that sport, with that sport in itself. As far as the violence of the light that I brought up is concerned, uh, I started noticing that happening when I started coaching somewhere in around the mid 80s you you probably was in high school when high school or elementary school at the time uh to where the parents were and i'm specifically talking about black parents were getting out of control getting out of control with their behavior uh it doesn't matter about that security that uh the person is talking about it may help it somewhat but i as a coach I have been on, I've been involved in having the layout on the field of play from gunshots at the stadium where we were playing at or in the parking lot. Now, it's not no security people in the parking lot. It may be some security people with wands like I was at a, a football game last night with wands as you were going into the stadium, but they're not in the parking lot. So... <laughs> You know, I mean, the whole idea of someone bringing a gun to a bunch of nine-year-olds playing is insanity at its best. So to answer your question, uh, I forgot exactly where I – did I answer your question? I, rec- I reckon so, because you said you were not aware of the specific incident in Jacksonville. Not, not specifically, to... no. 
it happens a lot. It happens a lot. I, I mean, it happens. It happens more than just that little report that went national. It happens a whole lot. I mean, it's all kinds of violence that takes place, and with these, and and it's evolving. It's not just football. It's not just football, and it's not just males. I'm talking about all of these sports. You can see that taking place. Basketball, right there in the gym. The players, the little league players, the female players. These are some of the things that you don't hardly see that much. This this particular situation went viral primarily because of a member, a, a, a former member of the National Football League who was a very popular player, was directly slash indirectly involved. That's the only reason why I got that much publicity is because of that. And this happened to be his brother, but he was there also. And now there's reports that stating that this person actually contributed towards the shooting. So that's why it got so much attention. But these things don't normally get as much attention. I did it. I did it as a coach is because it helped me get to college. I wouldn't have gotten to college if I wasn't, I didn't have a scholarship. And that's when I matured. And there's no, there's no such thing as a quote-unquote free ride. That's what they call a scholarship. That person earned that through a whole lot of work where most of their quote-unquote teenage peers are sleeping in bed. They're up 6 o'clock in the morning at a high school going through practice. You have to have a grade standard now that they don't play with. They don't over they, – they used to over – overlook that, but now they more than likely don't. Most of the kids that I coach have a grade point average of, of a, something like 2.8 or 3.0 or better. And I'm talking about all these people are black males. And that's where a lot of our boys are at, which I would say is far better than them hanging out in the streets and not – and, do, and not having any idea of what they want, they're going to do when they wake up in the morning. I would rather have them with a football helmet on their head and some shoulder pads as opposed to the other alternatives. And I choose to be there. Crazy. That's just crazy. Mm, mm, mm. Context of white supremacy. Uh, yeah, if you are an attempted parent, that would be one I think I would chat about before you have offspring as well. And at least my vote would be a big no way, uh, especially for like the high school or middle school or anything like that. Like we're going to go and join and, you know, play on their uh, basketball team or football team or, you know, whatever it is. Like, are you Jerry Sandusky? 
No way. And then I just said the uh, Jacoby, 14 years old, out fundraising for the football team with his jersey on. And Nick Ray, if you don't get off my property and we'll shoot you and all. I'm good on all of that. Yeah, as I said, it's, two, it's almost 2025. They have lots of healthy ways where you can get exercise, do team building in a non-violent manner. And particularly, I would say, because he just said, hey, he does this. He can work with black males. I said that throughout the years. Work with black males. Offer them some resources. Maybe, hey, I use this. Get an education. You can too. Don't think you're going to be, you know, Deion Sanders. He was mentioned uh, in the report. And, you know, signing some, you know, $500 million deal or what have you, Patrick Mahomes, don't think that. But, I mean, hey, you could, you know, get a scholarship, go to school, what have you, use that, put yourself in a better position, that sort of thing. Man, it is almost 2025. We can find better ways of achieving the same goal, no brain damage. And, geez, if this is the alternative to get you off the street and then – you end up getting shot anyway, like, oh, man, at the game, it's like, oh, man, geez. Or even having to be wanted, like all of that, ugh. Racist white supremacists are to blame for all of that. And incidentally, I think it is important, those sort of environments he was saying, you know, he works with a lot of these black males, trying to be constructive with them. A lot of times your competition is other black people. Other black coach, other black players, that's who, you know, is getting excited about. He said it's beyond football, basketball, whatever it is. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting all riled up to go with these other black guys. Or he said not just the guys, guys and the gals, young fellas out there, young ladies out there doing all of this. Even that, like, I can't even think of, like, are there activities where black people are getting really excited and we're going to be competing with white people. This is not basketball. This is not football or, you know, I don't know. I mean, really, once he gets it, because they say black people don't play baseball anymore. Never allowed us to play hockey. Serena Williams retired. <laughs> like, man, basketball, baseball, it's limited. We're going to compete with white people, young people. We're going to compete with white people. That's what we're getting ready for. Dr. Cambon, he said he would take his offspring to the library, tell them, look around, the university library, tell them, look around. This is your competition. White people studying quietly, probably about brain damage in the NFL and other ways of maintaining the system of white supremacy. Number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND, press star 61 if you would like to participate. The football got me so discombobulated, the, the killing on the field, like Jesus, that got me so uh, discombobulated that I forgot he did give a, an opinion on the job situation as well. So all, I think it's 4-0, uh, not that, you know, we could all be wrong, but everybody who's participated thus far uh, has given their opinion uh, and tried to provide logic with it that they would just let the white person do the explaining. They made the decision so they can explain why they made the decision as 
especially if you do not have a rapport uh, with, this, with this individual in the workplace. Uh, and again, we tend to behave a little bit better dealing with white people. Anywho, uh, I'll give a second or so, see if other folks have commentary that they would like to share or if they're uh, just spectating uh, for the evening. I wanted to make sure I got in, so let's see, two, two book requests, right? Okay. One of them, The Souls of White Jokes. The Souls of White Jokes, just published. Uh, I feel like I shouldn't even have to explain as many times that, you know, we've talked about racist jokes and white guests that we've asked about racist jokes. Even Curtis Wilkie this week, 80 years old, 82, I think, uh, in Mississippi of all places. No, I can't you know, tell you racist jokes. Come on. But I am so interested, and I think white supremacy, white supremacy is in the subtitle of the book. So I am very interested in checking it out. I think it might be written by a victim, but I at least do uh, want to check it out. Uh, anyone has, I think the e-version is available. I could go to the library and nab this tomorrow so I could read at the beach, uh, but I would prefer, I'm greedy about my beach time because we got so, you know, Limited sunshine around these parts in Seattle, Pacific Northwest. So if anyone can nab that book, that would be grand. I will read and share. To th they have an entire section in that book on President Obama. I thought that was so funny. I don't know if that's just me, but I thought that was absolutely hilarious. But then it only took me like two seconds to think like, oh, yeah, they did have about a billion racist jokes uh, directed at him for eight years, he and his wife and children. So I totally, I get it. Uh, let's see. The book request number two. So Souls of White Jokes. E-version, E-version, right? Okay. All righty. Uh, the second request, I just said we completed Absolute Madness Book Club this past week. Wow. Amazing read. I even I have to say that share that later. But amazing read. Wow. So glad we did it. And hopefully people uh, that will help individuals uh, keep some focus on. Oh, yeah. They killed all those black people in Buffalo. Man, trial is still going to happen. Have to pay attention to that. Yes. Uh, new book in the book club this Thursday. I was Super prepared to begin reading Bill Russell's Second Wind. Already got the book and had Cal's listeners willing to invest time and energy, their narrating skills, voicing the text. Gus doesn't have to do it. Always love that. We had listeners, no count social media, hate it. Listeners on social media being constructive, though. They said uh, that it's August, 17 years that they were going back looking all the work that the cows that we've done on her and Katrina, the levee failure and white supremacy, racism that saturated everything about those events. And that's signature cows work. Absolute madness. Our coverage of Buffalo is too now, but hurricane Katrina, I mean, we years of work uh, that we invested uh, covering hurricane Katrina, what happened in Louisiana. 
uh, to find out that there was a racist serial killer operating during, before and during Hurricane Katrina, and I had never heard of this guy that he killed two dozen almost exclusively black males, and I never heard of this guy. Don't think he was mentioned in any of the Katrina literature uh, that we covered. Like I said, I don't remember hearing his name at all. We will read The Bayou Strangler in the book club uh, this Thursday. We'll start. If anyone can assist getting the audio, it already exists, the audio book, that would be grand. I already have the book. Already have the book. Do not need that at all. Just the audio book. That would be great. This is a short book. I mean, so short, we should be able to be done in like, I think like four sessions. We should be done. It's very short, even though could be a lot of information in this text too. I guess one of the reasons it may be so short is because this event was not very well covered. That's been a major point of all of the projects that I've seen that talk about this. I haven't read this book yet, but hopefully we'll be starting Thursday, I believe, uh, that it didn't get that much attention surprise. So that might be one of the reasons that there might be a lack of direct sources uh, about these events. But I mean, this is so recent. Like this is, you know, I think you might have started having some of the remnants of social media by the time that this kicked in. I think YouTube uh, existed. Like, man. Anyway, that'll be Thursday. I'm super excited for lots of reasons. Uh, If anyone can assist. So the ebook. The Souls of White Jokes, the audiobook, The Bayou Strangler. Those are the book requests. Reading is more important than watching television. Anywho, uh, let's see. Anything else I want to get in? The, they had multiple reports about surveillance of children in the school system. Uh, on the computers and what have you, they even said that, hey, you got way more children are back in school now than before, right? They're not doing as much of the Zoom and all of that. They're back in the classroom directly. So why would there be an increase in surveillance? And they gave all the reasons and maybe efficiency and all the rest of it. All of that surveillance in the system of racism, white supremacy goes directly back to the plantation. Got to keep an eye on you. Even Frederick Douglass literally talked about this. Race soldiers wanted to give the impression, the all-seeing, omnipotent, white overseer, even in the language overseer, looking down from the heavens, man in the high castle, if you will, looking down always, can keep an eye on you, can jump out anytime. Ah, I've been watching you the whole time. You didn't even know it. That type of thing. That All of that goes back to controlling of the Negras. Still, what is it about? Control of the Negras. Anywho, uh, let's see. Uh, you'll have to be uh, alert. Uh, check social media on uh, Facebook, even though I got banned this week. I guess I should have said something about that. I, we had Curtis Wilkie as a guest on the program on Wednesday. We talked about his book, When Evil Lived in Laurel. I said even with language right there, his title, it suggests that racism, white supremacy was Back then, past tense, as though not now. James Craig Anderson was killed 2011. Deliberately ran over, ran that nigra over, James Craig Anderson. Frederick Germain Carter. Isn't it the Scott sisters? That was Mississippi, too. 
we just had him on the program on uh, what was that Wednesday. I was trying to promote about the event post Frederick Germain Carter. I don't go on social media and do all that keyboard thuggery and name call people and you know cursing around. I don't do all that. I post reports, constructive material. Really, a lot of times, just quote directly from the report, and that's it. I don't do a whole lot of, um, you know, trying to talk tough, cursing, being profane, just making a report, things that I've found. Information reports hopefully will help people get a better understanding of white supremacy, racism, being informed about current events. Frederick Germain Carter found hanging from a tree suspiciously in Mississippi, 2010, end of the year. I post, and this was widely reported. They had reports of his body hanging. People had questions. It's Mississippi, and it was in Greenwood, Mississippi. This is where Emmett Till, Carolyn Bryant Dunham, still not indicted. Emmett Till was killed, Greenwood, where Frederick Germain Carter was found hanging suspiciously. The final call, and many of USA Today, many outlets covered this at the time. I posted the final calls report on this tragedy. They uh, suspended me, said I violated the community standards policy. Even I think they even talk about mental health, said that I was doing something to promote uh, suicide or something of that nature. Like, this is a report saying, even questioning that this is a suicide, saying that this is an act of racism, terrorism, killing this black male. But even if it was, I would not be mocking, just be, oh, man, victim of racism and mental health. This is important, but I don't think that's what it was. Either way, how is that a suspension? Ban me for 24 hours, and I've heard that this sort of thing happens frequently. Victims of racism just attempting to report about racism get blocked. Meanwhile, they have race soldiers who get to attack and negra this and coon that and attack, threaten non-white people all day long. Much obliged to the final call for their reporting. Uh, let's see. Caller. Caller at 3172. Jeff, uh, commentary 3172. Um, yeah. I uh, Greetings, Gus, and greetings, everyone else. Um, I actually had a – well, I guess it's a comment that then poses a question. And um, I didn't know where else to ask. So I thought I'll ask it in this forum and pose it to you and maybe to some others who are listening. Um, It's a little bit of a non sequitur, but um, I don't want to jump topic, but um, I'm going to do that anyway. Okay, so this has to do with um, Dr. Francis Kresswalsing. And... um, I was listening to some of her shows that she did with um, on the cows, and um, she had mentioned that uh, um, white people are mutations to albinism, and mutations to albinism from black people. And she had mentioned that um, uh, you mix the white and black, mix the white and blacks, and then you get all the colors in the middle. That would be the yellow, the red, the brown. And um, my question then was, um, after hearing that, and I'm sorry, I don't, she's not here to pose it to her. Um, She's not here so I could pose it to her. But my question was then, well, is she then saying that if you mix white 
the mutations to albinism with black, and then you get all the colors in the middle, um, then does that mean that the red man, the yellow man, and the brown man um, are part, in part, children's or the offspring of white people? Are they the children of mutations to albinism? You know, I, I guess are they part white? Um, yellow, the yellow man, the red man, and the and and the brown man. Um, so that was this one question that kind of came up. Um, the other question that can then kind of came up was. Um, well, I've often heard that white people are the youngest race. So technically they wouldn't be the youngest race. They would be possibly the second race. And then basically all the other colors come after that because all the other colors come from the mixing of white and black. I don't know. Um, but anyway, these, these are some questions that um, kind of came up. And um, I don't know if anybody has any answers to this. Um, I'm sure there are other more important questions um, other people would answer. But, um, but yeah, it, uh, it, it just got made me thinking about it. That, well, and if that's the case, Oh, this is the final part. Um, it's a system of racism, white supremacy, um, which I believe it is, is to um, to prevent white genetic annihilation. Um, and if all the colors in the middle come from blacks mixing with whites, can black also genetically annihilate annihilate the yellow man? Can blacks also genetically annihilate the red man? Can we genetically annihilate the brown man? Since we have the most color. And if such is the case, then this third and last question would be, um, would that kind of explain why we, in part why we have no friends? quote-unquote, as that phrase sometimes is said about black folk. Um, That black folk are just basically on their own. We don't have any allies with the other colors. Um, You know, more often than not, it would appear. And do they, too, fear genetic annihilation? Similar to how white people, um, maybe not as greatly, but is that also still a fear? do we still pose a threat to them in that way? Anyway, that's it. Um, I'll mute my line. Much obliged, sir. Um, Certainly with Dr. Welsing, um, or really with anybody, always best to be able to ask, I think you had said that yourself, just for listeners as well, always best to be able to ask 
the question directly to uh, the person, they can explain it best. And I mean, hey, Dr. Welsing, she always had very detailed, well thought out responses to questions about white supremacy. So yeah, I definitely would not, you know, want to speak to her or uh, answer to her. Like last week, we ended up answering your own question, just uh, referencing the book uh, directly, because I think she, you know, the time to going through details there. Uh, I think specifically with the uh, non-white people being the product of white and black people, I've never heard her say that. Like somebody would have to point to a specific page or program and timestamp where she said that. Uh, I pretty consistently say that uh, all of the non-white people are just shades of black. I think I've heard her say that on a pretty consistent basis uh, throughout the years. Uh, I've not, yeah, I cannot say that I could point to a time uh, where I've heard her say that other non-white people, like non-black non-white people, are the product of white and black people. Um, with regards to non-black, non-white people, I mean, her theory is white genetic annihilation. That's another one. I have never heard her write talk about non-black, non-white people having some sort of fear of white genetic annihilation. Some of these things, I've just never heard her say anything like that. I've never heard her talk about any of this. I've never heard her say anything about black people having no allies with other non-white people. In fact, I think she added as one of the 10 stops for all of the black, brown, red, and yellow people to stop allowing racists to keep us fighting with one another. I think she even added that in. Uh, but incidentally, uh, it would depend on what you mean with the term friend. I don't think anybody has so-called friends in the system of white supremacy racism. White people have dogs. They don't say, I mean, what are they known for saying? They're homie. They're pal. They're friend to the end. Uh, I don't think anybody has uh, friend. I mean, hey, Vietnam is split, uh, split in half. We don't have friends. Uh, this is not about friends. White people are not even friends with other white people. Russia and Ukraine, I already mentioned that today. We just have a system of white supremacy, racism. White people unite around a racist code to practice racism. That's it. But I don't, even individuals classified as black, now I mean, hey, they want to get off on all of that, you know, uh, you got to be black and foundational black and all the rest of it. Okay, all of the black people who were all born in Georgia or California or South Dakota or wherever and have been there for the last 250 years, many of them don't get along. This is not about getting along, friends, none of that. Um, the, ne uh, the youngest race, uh, I've never heard Dr. Welsing talk about the youngest race uh, either. I've heard her use the language of the parent people. Uh, and again, that I would just encourage going back to read specifically what she said, because she talks about all of that in detail, even with like the title, all of that is, you know, spelled out in her book. Uh, but that that's language that I don't use the parent people or the youngest, the most important component of all of that 
because you said young because she doesn't even say the parent race she says parent people you said youngest race that's why I would just go back and read so we could be really clear on what Dr. Welsing is talking about. And then if you have your own thoughts, that's fine, too. But just to know what she said, Mr. Fuller has said consistently there is one race. I submit a whole lot of our confusion around this problem. And I mean, there's lots of it. Gusty Renegade super confused, too. But a whole lot of the confusion of non-white people not being able to grasp, hey, I am not a member of a race. That, for whatever reason, is, we've been told, <laughs> blame that on the usual folks too, but that produces so much confusion. I'm not a member of a race. The only reason to belong to a race is to practice white supremacy racism. Therefore, the only race, the white race, everybody else is a victim of white supremacy. Mr. Fuller uses the term non-race. I think that is way more important, and that tends to greatly reduce a lot of that thinking that black people and allies and all of this thinking that there are other races you just got lots of victims and the evidence overwhelming non-white people do not get along period nobody gets white people don't get along period we just happen to be reading about racist serial killers white people who killed black people we could switch this and read about white people who just went and killed other white people and plenty of them do that all day years in fact just that i could be in error as i said i'm still confused but that is very popular black people don't have friends and that's correct but hey no non-white people have friends they were talking in the segment about so-called immigrants coming over. And, oh, my God, these criminal looters, what are we going to do? Get them out of here. Ah. <laughs> All the rest. That's what they said. Now, again, they weren't talking about the Ukrainians, I don't think. I could be in error. Uh, let's Oh, man, we did our three hours. <laughs> we will check in with folks uh, down the road. Uh, as I said, you have to be mindful about this week. Book club Thursday, either way, but just in between, check the schedule for dates and times as we mosey on through the summer. In fact, hopefully Wednesday, I'll be able to deal with racism, white supremacy locally here in Seattle. I'll be able to post on it. That's why I said you have to check dates and times because hopefully I'll be able to share some of that as well. Maybe it have extra uh, audio recording. So just check dates and times. Uh, we may be here uh, right in the middle of the week a few times. <laughs> so check Facebook, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, I'll tweet it out uh, as well until justice at gmail.com if you get confused. Again, the book requests Souls of White Jokes. Audio, The Bayou Strangler. Ebook, Souls of White Jokes. Audio, The Bayou Strangler. I already have the book. The Bayou Strangler. 
Much obliged for your help, time, and energy. Much obliged for folks participated, our callers, questions. Again, I would encourage reread Dr. Welsing for myself, everybody. That's always the best way because she was so specific and exact in laying out her theory, giving a revisit is always uh, grand to make sure that we're specific and precise with her uh, concepts as we build and add as we get new information. Uh, that's it. Reading is more important than watching television, especially if you are going to be producing offspring. Why? Oh, my God. Oh, no football, no football, no football, no football. Oh, man. Absolutely disgusting, but that's what, you know, the system is all about. Protect your brain computer. Uh, sobriety would be best. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>